This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. defining characteristics of the universe, one of the defining characteristics of nature. And there have been volumes written on this, Uh, all sorts of essays, all sorts of books, all sorts of treatises. Uh, One of the defining characteristics of the universe is randomness. And it's great. It's beautiful. At least it's seeming randomness. Now, uh, those of us that believe in a higher being, uh, we think that all that randomness is part of some sort of a divine plan. Well, whether it is or not, I absolutely love it, right? And if you look at all the radio shows that I really loved over the years and all the TV shows that I really like over the years, these are the shows where anything can happen. It's why live television is so great. It's why live radio is so great. The Academy Awards, for instance, I really was into the last presentation, even though I hadn't seen most of the motion pictures that were nominated, because it's the only thing where everyone, not the only thing, but it's one of the few things where everybody's watching something live and something could go wrong, something unpredictable can happen. And it did when uh, Will Smith went and slapped Chris Rock. That's happened before with the Academy Awards. Remember the naked guy that streaked across the stage back in the 70s? Or how about when uh, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway read the wrong winner for Best Picture? That only happens in the kinds of presentations where it's supposed to be pre-scripted and, and still randomness finds a way to occur. The Super Bowl. You remember the Super Bowl maybe about 10 years ago? When the lights went out, when they lost power, I mean, that was kind of cool because it's exciting. It's not taped. It's raw. And a lot of the radio shows that I've enjoyed over the years, they have that element of randomness. The best the best example is the Bob Grant show. The Bob Grant show, you just never knew what one caller would say, one caller would do in order to just cause Bob to go on a rant or break down in hysterics or give a lecture about the War of 1812, whatever the case may be. It was exciting. It was unpredictable. It's one of the reasons I love listening to the uh, Cats at Night show uh, every weeknight at 5 p.m. Eastern is because he has all these weird combinations of people and all these great guests, and you just never know what's going to happen. Saturday Night Live in its heyday. It was random. It was exciting. It was unknown. And so I always try to, to the extent that you can... Strike a balance on this program between having a vague idea of where I think the program is going to go and at the same time including an important element of randomness. With that in mind, when sometimes the most important decision I make every day is what is going to be the first thing that we talk about on this program. So I have been going back and forth for the last three hours, about what it will be, right? And so I finally narrowed it down to two. And we have our wheel, and I, it's we used to have to bring a whole big wheel in here, but now I actually have a wheel-spinning app which can make the decision at random. But what we're going to do 
is turn to something that is even more random than a wheel. We are going to turn to Matt Blaze. Matt Blaze, I will ask you the question. Do you want to hear about and possibly participate in the discussion about gender-based voting or, 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 that's option one, gender-based voting or lingerie models? Hmm. Both are going to be interesting. And maybe we could do one later if we don't get to I'm going to have to say lingerie model. You know, was it ever really a contest? Was it ever oh, really that, a contest? Is that really random? Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. So this is such an interesting story, okay? And this requires you, those of you that have your phone or your uh, computer nearby, to be a little interactive, okay? I just posted an article, um, which includes a photo. Of Heidi Klum, who's obviously a very famous model, and her daughter, who's 18 years old, by the name of Lenny, the daughter goes by. And I I thought this was a little weird the other day. She did this um, lingerie photo shoot, Heidi Klum. I saw this. I read about it in the, in the New York Post. But she did this lingerie photo shoot. I'm trying to get the photos now so that you can make an informed decision. With, for an Italian brand, it's called Intimissimi, uh, where the two of them, Heidi Klum, who's in her, I believe, late 40s, I think she's 49, and her daughter, who is 18, they, uh, you know, it's funny, I'm trying to get the photo on the internet now, and it looks like it's very difficult to get. I'll, I'll find it and I'll put it up. But um, the daughter, who's 18, and Heidi Klum, are both in lingerie for this photo shoot. Okay, I found it. So I'm going to I'm going to link to this on Facebook and tell me whether you think this is inappropriate or not. Uh, you can go and look at Facebook.com slash Morano fan. That's Facebook.com slash Morano fan. And uh, tell me what you think. Because now I thought it was a little weird. Um, when I saw it, not necessarily inappropriate because I, I have never really gotten what the big deal is with lingerie. You know, the stereotype of men in media on sitcoms or in other places was always that um, was always that. Oh, my goodness. Lingerie. That's like uh, softcore pornography. I've never gotten that at all. I mean, really, if you look at it, what lingerie is, it's really just uh, it, it's the same kind of clothing that women would be wearing in a swimsuit. Uh, so I've never really gotten what the big deal is with lingerie. But um, I thought it was a little bit weird, um, if that's the right word, for a grown woman to be posing this way with her daughter, who's only 18 years old, with the two of them essentially in their underwear. But I basically I thought about it for eight seconds, and I kind of just moved on with my life. I didn't spend a tremendous amount of time worrying about it, not a tremendous amount of time thinking about it. Sure enough, though, people are fired up about this in a big way. You could see the photo for yourself at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. So she did this lingerie photo shoot with her 18-year-old daughter for this Italian brand, professionally done, professional photographers, no nudity, anything like that. The two of them modeled black and white lingerie together, 
And in the photos, each is wearing a bra, underwear, and a pair of heels. The caption of the photo says, Like mother and daughter, every woman has a special place in her heart for her favorite lingerie. But not everyone is loving it. The One user commented on the post, The photo is weird. It's funny that they uh, used my same verbiage. The photo is weird, and the caption makes it weirder. The brand also shared a handful of images and video from the photo shoot. While Klum shared the images herself, the supermodel turned off comments for the post. One person writes, sexualizing your daughter the moment they turn legal is weird, another person wrote on a post. Very disturbing, another user added. Another person writes, I like to think I'm progressive in these things, but mom and daughter in lingerie in the same video shoot is just a bit ick. Others, though, shared praise for the ad campaign, for the brand campaign. Amazing mother and daughter. Wow, finally a mommy model with her daughter instead of influencers. I'm sick of seeing all the time. Good advertisement this time. Another user addressed the backlash, saying they don't get why everyone is pressed. This is actually a very classy ad for underwear, beautifully embracing the Italian background of this brand. It's mother and daughter in everyday wear, and if you automatically sexualize this, that is your problem. You might want to think about the fact that not every woman's body in underwear is meant to be sexual and that it's just a regular clothing item. I thought that was a good point. So I want you to look at this photo at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Heidi Klum and her daughter in lingerie, a 40, I believe she's 49, and an 18-year-old. And tell me if you think this was inappropriate, either for the mom to do, for the daughter to do, or for a big Italian brand to put this out there. My um, my view is that I, I didn't think it was I didn't think it was sexual. I just thought it was a little I'm going to go with the word weird, you know, to have um, to pose publicly with your daughter in your underwear. I don't know. I, I, I didn't think it was overly sexualized at all. I just thought it was um, a little. Overly. I don't know what even the word I'm looking for. I had some sort of a an, a reaction to it where I didn't think this was the best thing in the world. But then I thought about it for another minute, and I said, okay, they're both adults. She's 18. She's an adult. She's 49. She's an adult. Her mother is there. She's going to make sure that her daughter's not taking advan- being taken advantage of by some creepy photographer or something along those lines. So, okay, maybe it's not such a big deal. But I did bristle at it uh, initially. What do you, you think? You felt disturbed? I didn't feel disturbed. Um, was that what you felt? No. I, I Well, I saw two things. The first thing I looked at just now was the pictures. And in the pictures, it looks like they're standing around in bikinis. Right. It, it doesn't right. really look like lingerie. When I think of lingerie, I think of like a nighty or something like that. This just looks like bikinis. Heidi Klum... Uh, still looks great at 49. Absolutely. Her daughter is also gorgeous. I would say if I had to rate the two of them, I'd say Heidi Klum wins out a little bit more than her daughter. But I will tell you this is what I did find a little disturbing. There is a video of the photo shoot. See, I haven't seen the video yet. Mm -hmm. And there's a video, and they're, like, twirling around, and there's a point where they, like, lean in, and they kiss, like, on the lips, and it's just the two of them posing, and watching a live video of it, 
That seems a little. They look more like lovers than mother and daughter. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, so in the video, I, I haven't seen. Right. It. So, Kenneth, yeah, you that, agree that, with the Matt assessment? Hundred percent. It definitely looked weird with the video, but I, I ran into them leaving the Calvin Klein shoot that I did. I bet you um, did. I bet you did. The first thing uh, Heidi Klum said was, uh, I really like your haircut. <laughs> so uh, I, I want people to look at this and tell me if you think it's disturbing. That's the headline that uh, some people are ascribing to this. 800-848-9222. At the end of the day, I don't think it's that big of a deal. But you know what? It, if it, it could be a big deal is if it leads every model to want to do this with their daughter and continuing and continue to push the envelope of uh, of intimacy and sexuality. Because, look, you don't want necessarily to uh, create a situation where every model that's aging out of what society deems is the appropriate uh, age group for modeling to pressure their 17, 18, 19-year-old daughters to follow into their mom's footsteps and, you know, dress in a manner that could be, you know, a bit provocative. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Heidi Klum's a professional. Uh, I think she probably has pretty good judgment in knowing when things cross that line from being tasteful to sexy to creepy. And uh, I don't think she I don't know anything about Heidi Klum, but I don't think she would put her daughter in a position where something like that is uh, is going to happen to her. Lenny, the daughter, launched her modeling career at the age of 16 and uh, they Klum and her daughter appeared on the cover of Vogue Germany about a year ago. And uh, Klum said in 2020 that Lenny regularly spent time with her on TV sets and has had aspirations to model and host shows. Heidi Klum said she kind of comes on set and looks and learns not just what I do, but also what all the different people on the set are doing. Um, I think it's very interesting to her when you're that age and you're still trying to figure out who you are, what you want to be and kind of see for the first time, what are all these different jobs to make a TV show happen? She does want to do what I do. Look, um, she clearly has been around modeling before. She's clearly been around uh, different sets and different photographers before. Why shouldn't she, if this is what the job entails, why shouldn't she be able to do it with her mother? Although, uh, according to Matt Blaze, the video seems a little suggestive when they're kissing and dancing around and that they it's a little disturbing is the word of the day. Uh, for a mother and daughter to be photographed and videotaped like that. But let me know what you think. 800-848-9222, uh, 1-800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. Coming up in the um, second hour of our program, we're going to have a look at the situation involving TWA Flight 800. This is one of those cases. Whenever I brought it up, uh, folks always question the official narrative that it was a mechanical failure. We're going to get into this with Jack Cashel, who says that he doesn't buy it. He's actually written two books about this, saying that there was a cover-up and a conspiracy and that the investigation was mishandled. We'll find out why. Uh, In our third hour, we did an interview a couple of weeks ago with uh, someone who is trying to bring a new form of government to Atlantic City. I find it pretty exciting, and I think it could actually be a model for different municipalities around the country, including New York. And that's a movement towards nonpartisan elections. So, the chairman of the Democratic Party in Atlantic County, New Jersey, heard our interview and he reached out to me. He said, look, I'd love to give the contrary point of view. 
And I have never, ever, whenever anyone has asked to come on this show and offer a contrary view to something that someone else has had, has said, I have never, ever turned them down. So he's going to join us uh, in our third hour. And then in our last hour, we're going to have our regular Thursday sit down with uh, Brian Kilmeade, New York Times bestselling author and the co-host of Fox and Friends. Uh, he has made quite a bit of news this week in standing up for the um, vaccination or standing opposed to the military's vaccine mandate. So we're going to find out where he is on that and uh, what the latest is on that. So there's a lot to get to. Right now, though, there's eight open phone lines if you want to comment on uh, this controversy involving the lingerie situation with Heidi Klum and her daughter. And again, uh, you can see the photo that everybody's worked up about uh, by going to my Facebook page at facebook.com slash MoranoFan. We'll continue with your calls straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I tried to make me go to rehab. I said no, no, no. Yes, I've been black, but when I come back, no, no, no. I ain't got the time. And if my daddy thinks I'm fine, just try to make me go to rehab. I won't go, go, go. I'd rather be at home with Brad. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Well, so far I've been getting a lot of email in response to this uh, Heidi Klum and Lenny Klum photo shoot. And sure enough, uh, the email that I've gotten thus far, people are agreeing with Matt Blaze. They say the thing about it that is disturbing is the, the sharing of the kiss during this lingerie photo shoot. That's what makes it a little more risque than the two of them just being photographed there. Now, I believe Heidi Klum is German, right? I, I think so. I don't pretend to be a Heidi Klum expert by any stretch. And, uh, yeah, she's a German-American model and TV host. And uh, they do things a little bit different in Europe. In Europe, everybody kisses everybody. You you order a cup of coffee and you have to tongue-kiss the barista. It's really, that's the way it is over there. It's a bizarre, it's a very different culture over there. Um, but so far, I, you know, you could have, this is why this show is so exciting. You really, I don't even know what's going to happen, let alone the listener. I would have thought for sure that I was going to have to fight off people to move on to another subject. Sure enough, this is the state of our phone lines right now. There is no, there is nobody, nobody ha- is calling in to comment on this. Goes to show you what I know about predicting the nature of a talk radio audience. All right. Uh, one person emails me, though. I guess this is one of those things people just might feel more comfortable emailing so that they don't have to go on record one way or another and answer questions. Uh, one person emails me, it's wrong. Here's why. They're wearing shoes. And this is an interesting take, and I wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have made this. Only prostitutes and strippers wear underwear and shoes. That makes it sexual. 
That's interesting. Okay, I would not have thought of that, but okay, that's what this guy thinks. Last thing I was looking at was the shoes. I bet, I bet you were. I bet you were not. Uh, kids shouldn't be sexual with parents at any age. That's what this person says. All right, so there you have it. Uh, that is, seems to be the consensus, and since no one is interested in talking about it, we will move right along. Um, I, um, I was thinking about my friend Bernard McGurk again yesterday because, obviously, this has been a hectic few days, and... Uh, I have gotten not very much sleep, as I've talked about. I'm not going to belabor the point. I don't want to whine. I know a lot of you get sick when I whine about my sleep schedule. And so I was really excited for, what day is today? Thursday. Wednesday. To come home on Wednesday because it was going to be the first day since since a week ago, since a week prior, where I could actually get some sleep. And so I I had no reason to stay late at the radio station. I was going to get out of here early. I had no reason to get up early. I was poised to get maybe six hours straight of sleep, which is more sleep than I've gotten in over a week. I was excited. So lo and behold, I get to sleep. uh, I I come home around, uh, I don't know, six-ish. My wife is up. My son is up. And uh, the playing around and stuff. I said, oh, you know, honey, I, I could stay up with him for a little while if you need to take a nap. She says, no, I'm up already. He'd been up since 5.15. And um, she says, well, you want to stick around with him while I uh, shower, get changed. That'd be great. So I'm playing with Carmine and everything. We're having a good time. And uh, then I, I get to sleep finally around 7 o'clock. Okay. I figure I'm golden. Going to sleep till 2 p.m., maybe even 2.30, depending on Carmine's nap schedule. Lo and behold, I wake up at 10.20 in the morning, three three hours later. Now, I woke up. I was sure that it was going to be um, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, 2.30 in the afternoon. And I woke up at 10.20. Look at the clock. It's 10.20. And I said, all right, okay. I woke up. And sometimes that can be a great relief if you wake up before you have to wake up and you realize you don't have to be up yet. You lie back in bed, you go back to sleep. And that could be very comforting. And I love to do that. I said, all right, let me lie here. I'm lying there 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, wide awake. Cannot get another wink of sleep. And now this is the worst thing because then you start trying to fall asleep and then you really can't fall asleep. And then I start hearing every noise that's going on in the house. I hear Carmine with his babysitter, Lorraine. I hear my wife. I hear the doorbell. When I'm usually asleep at this time, I don't hear anything. I'm hearing every word. I'm now wide awake. And then I, uh, I, I make the mistake, although at this point I was ready to throw in the towel. By 11.15, I said, let me reach for my mobile phone. If I'm going to be sitting here anyway, let me at least try and get some work done. So I start answering some emails. I make the mistake of going into the Facebook group, which you can find at Morano Radio Fans and Haters, and I find a long list of people that have problems with everything I've ever done and said. If if you ever really want to be humbled, just go into that Facebook group and say anything, and there's somebody that will pounce on you. Maybe it's for your pronunciation of the word France. Maybe it's for comments about Tulsi Gabbard. Maybe it's for whatever, not doing enough alien talk. You just never know. But, but there is something that I've done wrong, and that group will straighten me out again and again. So um, I, I figure, all right, I'm going to start the day. This is crazy. I can't just lie here and not being able to fall asleep. So I, get, I go walk downstairs at 1130. My wife looks at me. She says, what are you doing awake? 
You don't have to be awake. This is your first day that you get to sleep. Uh, I said, I don't know. She said, you need to go to sleep. You need to maybe watch a movie or something or uh, do something, read a book, and then go to sleep because you're not going to be able to sleep. You're going to be a disaster later. So at this point, I was, I was kind of hungry. So I made myself a little, I don't even know what it was. I don't know if it was breakfast or a midnight snack. Best dog food I have ever eaten. So I made myself some eggs. And um, then pretty soon Carmine's up. Carmine's up from his nap. And I'm up with him. And I'm wide awake. So we go for a walk. We have a whole adventure together. And um, my wife says, when I get up, she says, all right, I'm going to make you some sleepy time tea. When I first started these hours and I was having a difficult time snapping back to sleep, my sister, Claudia, bought me all this sleepy time tea, which actually does work. So she says, all right, I'm going to give you some sleepy time tea. Maybe that'll help you get back to sleep. So I drink this sleepy time tea. I also took a melatonin. And I know where this is going, right? I know this is going to make me drowsy and then have me sleep later, right? But walking around... Carmine and I go around the neighborhood. We uh, we go to visit my Aunt Camille. She was happy to see us. Egg salad was not yet made yet, but we had a nice visit nonetheless. And um, then we come back to the house. I'm still with Carmine. And now, now it's starting to hit me, right? Now I'm getting really tired. It's about 2 o'clock, and I'm ready to f- fall asleep standing up. And... Uh, Carmine, she says, all right, you know, can you stay with Carmine until about 2.30? I have some work to do till 2.30, and then maybe I'll put him down for a nap or something. Carmine's very fatigued. He starts falling asleep. You know, we have this jumper that he jumps around in. He starts falling asleep, literally standing up in his jumper. And um, he was very cute the way he did it. So then my wife comes at 2.30 to take him, and she says, do you need to go to sleep? Yes. So I go to sleep. The next thing I know, I go, fall, I go out like a light. The next thing I know, it's 6.30 in the evening, 6.30 in the evening, which is an incredibly stressful situation because I still have to help with Carmine before he goes to bed and everything. And I have to then start rapidly preparing for this show because normally I'm preparing in fits and starts from the time I wake up around 2 p.m. So now I'm almost four hours behind on my work for the day. So, um, and, you know, my wife still wants to have dinner and everything, and I want to have dinner with her, obviously. So we're, um, that's that's where we were. I don't know how people do the, the, the hours. I think what happened, and I don't know why I um, was not able to sleep. I, the only thing I could think is that because for the last week, I had not gotten more than three or four hours at a time, Maybe my body had become so used to waking up after three or four hours that it couldn't stay asleep longer than that. That's the only thing I could think. And the reason I thought of Bernard McGurk is because when we used to compare notes on hours and when I used to fill in on the morning show and I, he would give me tips on, on sleeping and everything like this, Bernard used to tell me, Frank, the only thing that's going to help you Get to sleep right away when you have to sleep here in spot in this spot and that spot and you're being called upon to do mornings and afternoons. The only thing that's going to help you is Ambien. You need to take Ambien. It'll put you out right away and you'll get an idea of what dosage you need to take so that you can fall asleep right away and wake up right away. Because otherwise you're not going to be able to sleep and you're not going to be able to function. And he said, trust me, this is what I use. And so I never took it because I've heard so many horror stories 
about people that would take Ambien and it would um, they would end up in a tough spot. But I got to Bernie. Almost every conversation that we had regarding sleep, he would put in a plug for Ambien. And it was it's a very funny morning show those guys have, Bernie and Sid, because Bernie would constantly be trying to get me to take Ambien. Sid would always be trying to get me to take steroids. And so it was a quite a combination, the two of them. One one pushing Ambien, one pushing steroids. And uh, I never ended up taking I never ended up taking either. So I guess maybe uh maybe I'm worse off for it. But I'm hoping today I can migrate to a more regular sleep schedule of some sort. We'll see. But I'd be curious to know if you guys that are working right now or that work these odd hours, if you have a similar situation with when you don't get a lot of sleep and then you have to snap back to whatever your regular schedule is, do you have a tough time adjusting in what you do? Do you do that Bernard McGurk method of Ambien, or do you do something else? And if so, what is it? Because that sleepy time tea and melatonin combination did work in making me drowsy, but I was still tired when I woke up at 6.30. So I had to then I had to then uh, have a cup of coffee as soon as I got to the radio station just to wake up a little bit. So uh, I could totally understand how these stars, you know, you read all these stories about Stars that are always working, like Liza Minnelli, Judy Garland, Elvis Presley, Marilyn Monroe, how they need to take uh, sedatives to get to sleep, and they need to then take uh, pep pills or uppers to start their day again and maintain that schedule. Now, I don't do any of that, but I could totally understand the mentality that goes into that. 800-848-9222. Glenn is in Brooklyn. Hello, Glenn. Oh, hi. Um, I, I wanted to um, just tell you when it comes to... Heidi Klum and, and some of these others is really all, all about money. A fashion model makes about two hundred dollars in one hour just for a photo shoot. Now, you tell me how many people make two hundred dollars in one hour? Yeah, well, obviously that's I think one of the reasons that people are eager eager to pursue this line of work is because if you're successful at it, it can be very lucrative. But did you uh, understanding that it is about money? And I don't think anybody thinks these fashion models are doing this for charity. But understanding that it's about money, did you have a chance to look at the photo? And do you think that uh, what's in the photo, this depiction of the mother and daughter in their underwear, is inappropriate? I don't really know. I, I actually ha- have not, but I do believe that that it is the parents' responsibility to protect their children. Well, I, I thank you, Glenn. I certainly do as well. I don't know that uh, Heidi Klum's daughter was unprotected here. I mean, if somebody was trying to do something really. Uh, exploitive, I would think Heidi would have put a stop to that, but I guess they don't think this is exploitive. Again, there is that European sensibility there. 800-848-9222. Loretta is in Brooklyn. Hello, Loretta. Hi, sweetheart. Uh, I just tuned in, so uh, you're either Frank or... uh, No, you're Frank. Uh, I'm Frank or somebody else. That is true. (laughs) I'm I'm getting to know the voices a little bit. Uh, I just heard you talk about Ambien. Right, and what's your what's your take on that? It's a control substance, and uh, my doctor didn't want to prescribe it for me. Um, I actually had insomnia, and I had to prove to him that insomnia is a real illness. I'm retired. 
maybe uh, I'm 77 now, so maybe I was 70. I told him, Doc, I don't ever want you to retire. But if you do, you're going to find your whole life is different. Uh, your schedule is, is yours alone. You, you know, you don't have to get up early, set the clock and all this. He saw me in his office whacked out. So that's when he prescribed Ambien, and uh, I adjust it. I take it once or twice a week at the most, and I get my sleep. And I don't want to be hooked. I also have a pain pill because um, I have a, I have severe arthritis all over my body. So I I'm not walking. I'm crawling. Mm, and I'm I, sorry and to I, hear that. Well, I'm. I'm with God's help, I'm doing it, and, and I can't get back into rehab again, you know, with all this so far anyway. I've been there three times. What, but, was it uh, a physical rehab or a rehab for substance abuse? Oh, physical rehab. Huh. Um, I couldn't walk for three years. Oh, boy. Well, I'm, I'm glad I, you're doing better now, Loretta. Oh, yeah, um, with God's help. The elevator is out of commission for three months now because they're installing a new one, and I am going down those steps and back up when the doctor said no, and I agreed with him. And when I come in, I try to stay out as long as possible to enjoy my day out, and the pain pill wears out in six hours, and I'm still doing it. I think God is lifting my butt up. <laughs> well, that's great, Loretta. But uh, in short, though, f- f- you would be pro-ambient for people that have difficulty adjusting to an odd sleep schedule or have difficulty if, sleeping? If you really can't sleep, it's a real concern. It's a real insomnia. is a physical condition. No, no, absolutely. Loretta, thank you. I'm not going to take Ambien. I mean, unless this gets, unless it gets really bad, uh, one or two sleepless days is not enough for me to turn to Ambien. You know, you hear so many stories. Remember that situation with Patrick Kennedy uh, with the Ambien? I've also known a lot of radio people that because of the odd hours they rely on Ambien. And some have, uh, I don't know, some have become addicted. Others have become far too reliant on it. I never thought Bernie was. But and I want to mention any names, but some other hosts that you might know have had problems managing Ambien, and it's one of the reasons I never wanted to touch it. Never wanted to touch it I, ever. I did take Ambien, and so what was your take? Um, on it? In the beginning, it was fine. It does put you out right away because it stops your brain. Right, that's from, what Bernie said, and it does. But there was a point when I took it one time, and I thought I was dreaming. Oh boy! But I was not. I was walking around, and it felt like I was in a dream. So after that, I was like. I'm done. I'm not, so you I'm not, swore it off. I, I don't, I'm not taking it. And I go through this, you know, all the time, the same as you, uh, with these hours. And I've come to – I take z just about every day to go to sleep. And I have to be in the bed – I have to be in bed by 10 a.m. the latest. Because I get up around 5.36. I leave my house at 6.30. What, do you take z to fall asleep or to stay yeah. asleep? No, to fall asleep. Why do you have a difficult time falling asleep? I would think by the time you get home, you're tired. It's weird. Like, sometimes I get home and I'm tired and I'll fall asleep for like a half hour, like watching TV, and then I wake up and now I'm like awake. Mm. So that happens. The other day, I actually fell asleep for like an hour. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm awake. And now when it was time to go to sleep... Just like you, you lay down and you're just laying there and you can't fall asleep. You know what it is with me, too? When I was lying there for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, unable to fall asleep, I, 
immediately my brain is filling with all the things that I have to do. And I'm thinking to myself, well, this is unproductive. I'm not sleeping and I'm not doing anything. I should at least try to get stuff done. Um, And I'm hoping, again, I'm hoping today I can bounce back to kind of a normal schedule. And, uh, you know, I'm supposed to come in early tonight and meet a friend for, for dinner. I am hoping that he cancels. This is one of those things. This is a friend of mine from high school. We're friends for years. Great guy. And we've been trying to get together for literally two months, but one, and always on a Thursday uh, because, uh, you know, Thursday is a little bit more manageable to me. And so, you know, one week he can't do it. The next week I can't do it. The next week he can't do it. The next week I can't do it. So I, I am hoping he cancels so that I don't have to come in early. The, but the, it's going to be interesting. The other thing that I do um, is I count backwards in your brain. I mean, my eyes are closed because they say that, when you start thinking about all the things you have to do, you're thinking of different things. If you start thinking in a repetitive way, it tires your brain and you'll get tired. Well, that's uh, there's a lot of meditation. That's a lot of meditation techniques that use a similar a similar tactic. 800-848-9222. Ben is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, Ben. Hey, how are you? I'm making a living. Uh, Super. I'd like to say this is my first time calling in, and it's uh, not something I do normally, but I was on my way home and heard you speak about Heidi Klum and her daughter. And uh, I had to look uh, very safely, I must say, and uh, I don't see anything wrong with that. Now, usually, you know, you see photos like that and you hear stuff like that, and it could be you know, risque, but I think Heidi Klum, she looks great. Her daughter looks great. And it is Italian, uh, you know, lingerie and, you know, it is her uh, daughter and they've been around one another doing that type of business for so long. And, uh, I really didn't see anything, you know, wrong with that. And I was actually thinking when they take those videos, I know sometimes, you get a lot of the better pictures from a video mm. and then snapshot it. So maybe that's how they do all them photos, you know, sessions. And that's why, you know, how you got the one with the kiss. I didn't know about the video. But yeah, well, that's why we have Matt Place here. He, these are the stories that he digs deep on and, uh, and does deep dive yeah. into investigating. Hey, Ben, thank you. I hope you'll make calling a regular part of your early mornings. Sure. Sure. Uh, can I let you know one more thing about the ambulance? Go for it, Ben. It's a first-time caller privilege. You can have the hey, floor I'm, as long I'm as you need. I'm on a roll here. I'm sitting out in front of my house. I'm going to get yelled at, but I hope everybody's sleeping. Uh, anyways, the ambient. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. I know I've been, you know, my experience with night shift and all different hours. My hours now go from 5, 5 in the afternoon until... Uh, supposed to be 1.30 a.m., but I left a little early today. And uh, sometimes there's overtime. And uh, that's for FedEx Freight. So, I mean, it gets very, very tough to sleep. And uh, I was hearing you say about eating dinner and uh, liking to do stuff with your son. And I was thinking, oh, my God, I was laughing and sort of cringing because it's hard. It's hard when you don't get that sleep. And then you start thinking about sleeping, 
and you're really not going to sleep, you know? Yeah. Well, Ben, thank you. Uh, thanks for calling. Uh, best of luck with uh, with your sleep schedule and everything else. And for your sake, I hope you don't get yelled at. hope everybody's asleep. Thank you, Ben. 800-848-9222. Uh, my friend Obi Murray calling in, an expert in both lingerie and sleep. Hello, Obi. Oh, expert in neither of those, officially, on the record. <laughs> but anyway, hey, on sleep, by the way, yeah, NyQuil, ZQuil, all works. You know, put, it puts you down. You figure out your your habits of what you need, but I, I also make very careful not to take it often. It's if I if I only have a well, short time same. To sleep I, I never. Lately. I can't remember the last time I need. I felt uh, I needed to take one of these melatonins, and uh, I you know I've read some things about melatonin that's not great. So I I stopped. I it's been maybe six months since I took a melatonin, and I don't know the last time Rachel's had to make me one of these sleepy time teas either. So I, I try not to use a lot of these sleep aids either. Well, when I, and I, when I do take it, somebody else knows about it usually. Right, okay. Like, I don't well, do it two and three nights in a row type thing. But it's only, like I say, NyQuil, ZQuil. But uh, wasn't Ambien what Tiger Woods was taking? I believe it was, yeah. And, uh, again, that's one of the reasons I've heard so many stories about people getting into accidents, yeah. people like what Matt Blaze was describing. They think they're dreaming and they're awake and all sorts of other things. Uh, and, uh, I, yeah, no, it's, it's to me, even if that's the exception and not the norm, there's way too many stories of that for my taste. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, on the Heidi Klum stuff, you know, her daughter doing the lingerie is one thing. I'm surprised she didn't start modeling earlier, though. Given her mother, well, she figured right, so, that if she wanted to get into that that uh, arena, she would have started it much earlier. Yeah, I, than, I guess. I guess you know they figure if they're going to have her model things like lingerie, they want to wait until she's an adult. Well, no, of course, but but was she, what was she modeling before? I, uh, yeah, I it's a good that. question. I, I don't know. I, I'll be honest. I yeah. didn't even really know that Heidi Klum had a daughter until all the articles about this yesterday. Yeah, you, you and me both. But the other thing too is if if the, I've got to believe she's got no history of having troubles as a youth, so to speak, Heidi and so forth, mm-hmm. to speak of, she's got pretty good judgment. She knows what her daughter's into. Better to do it around mom than not, per se. Um, and, you know, artistic stuff, you never know what they're going to do in that video and so forth. But mom's there, and I'm sure Heidi, giving her high visibility and her professionalism, knew exactly what was going to go on and why um, and what, what her daughter was going to be expected to do, what she would do, and what the usage would be. So to that end, yes, is something maybe somebody questions the appropriateness of it, but I kind of trust Heidi's judgment on this one. Yeah, she's well, not the, you, you're right. I, I think hard. You, you, you know, know, you're right. If um, you model. know, if if I was gonna, if my son was gonna pursue radio, I would try to look out for him a little bit and steer him in a direction that he wouldn't get taken advantage of. And Heidi Klum is much more accomplished in the world of of modeling than I am in uh, radio. Obi, it's always a treat to talk it, with it, you, it, my it, friend. By the way, Frank. Yep. The thing is, where everyone's talking about it, it's getting the earned media. Oh, that's sure. Wanted sure, for it. Sure. And you mentioned if other models start doing with their daughters. You know, you get tired of it. They won't be covering it the same way. You're right. This is news and coverage because it's unusual. Yeah, uh, fair enough, Obi. Thank you. Uh, Mike is in New Jersey. Hello, Mike. Hi, Frank. I just uh, I'm sorry about Bernard McGurk. Uh, Thank you. Yes. Um, I wasn't a, wasn't a huge Imus fan. I was more of a Howard Stern fan. Same. I same. can recall. I, I didn't. I, uh, recall. I didn't even really know who Bernie was until he got fired. Honestly, but I, I got to know him uh, really well when he started to, to work here. But yes, as a listener, I still am a Howard Stern fan. I was never an Imus fan. Yeah, I I knew of Bernard when he would do his imitations. I might tune over then, but my favorite part of the only time I really listened to Imus is when Howard and Imus would go at it over the airwaves, and you try to listen to the response. But um, I wanted to know with um, 
Bernard, there was a rumor, and I don't know if Howard had said it on the air, if you remember, he had claimed that Bernard had called to try to get a job with him. And I don't know if that was just shtick to try to uh, rub it in Imus's face or if that was accurate. Uh, that was my first question. And the second question is, Frank, you should know as a man that there's a certain way you can fall asleep uh, quickly. And I'm not going to say it over the airwaves, but <laughs> Mike, you, uh, you know as well. Mike, uh, as far as the first part of your, your question goes, uh, or I I don't remember Bernie ever mentioning that. I know um, he knew Howard back in the day, and, and he liked Howard. And uh, I played some clips of him talking about Howard uh, the last on Friday, and obviously his opinion of Howard changed because of some of the things that Howard said about Trump supporters, and Bernie was a Trump supporter. But that doesn't strike me as a Bernard thing to do. And, um, you know, I know he goes back with those guys away uh, a long way. Gary Delabate, Baba Bowie, was in Bernard's wedding when Bernie got married. Bernie's mentioned in Gary's book, actually. But uh, I don't think uh, I don't think that happened. But uh, it could have been hap- something that happened that I didn't know about. As far as your other comment, I will let that go as is without further comment from me. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I have one thing to say. You better work. Side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, this is RuPaul, right? Uh, straight to the phones we go at 800-848-9222. Paula is in Manhattan. Hello, Paula. Hello, Frank. <laughs> and I have today um, a Heidi Klum story. I'm ready. Something I will never forget. <laughs> I love dogs, and um, once upon a time, it was oh after 9/11. I was working still. I was working in that toxic zone downtown and I used to go out but this was not has nothing to do with 9-11 but just telling you where I was it was on 2nd Avenue and I was walking up 2nd Avenue on my break and I love dogs my two favorite dogs are um the uh uh uh, uh oh the dachshund and the um oh my god because of my nervous my favorite dog the uh, Jack Russell Terrier oh. so these two older people were coming down 2nd Avenue with their Jack Russell Terrier. So I have to stop and talk to them. And I immediately noticed they were German. I lived in Germany for 16 years, and I speak fluent German. Oh. So I picked up on the accent immediately and noticed that they were having trouble speaking English. So, you know, I spoke to them in German. And we were talking about the dog, and I asked them a couple of questions about the dog. And they said, no, it's not our dog. It's our daughter's dog. And um, we're here on a visit, and we're taking care of the dog for her. And I said, "Oh wow!" And they said, "Yeah, she's on a she's on a modeling shoot right now." And I said, "Oh, that's fantastic! Where?" And they said, um, "Victoria's Secret." The dog's name was Sheila. Yeah, German accent, sort of like Sheila. So anyway, they never mentioned who the model was. Um, they never mentioned the model's name, and um, yeah. 
I was also into German magazines, and every week I would buy my German magazines, and the German magazine that's similar to People's Magazine is called Bunta. So I bought my magazine, Bunta, and I was going through it the next week, and I saw a Jack Russell Terrier in there, and the dog's name was Sheila. Guess whose dog it was? Heidi Klum. Exactly. Yes, I met a celebrity dog. That's pretty neat. That, that is something. Yeah, I'll never forget that. Well, that's great. And uh, so uh, does that inform your view of this this lingerie photo shoot situation at all? Um, not really. I haven't seen the photos. I'm interested in seeing them now because I watched um, her um, some of her modeling. Oh, um, like The Apprentice, but for models. Who's the next great model? Sure, I, I right, uh, right. Next top model, I think, is the is the model. program. Well, Paula, yeah. that's great. I uh, I uh, will uh, look forward to hearing future stories from you about your time in Germany and your time with uh, Jack Russell Terriers as well. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Paula, for calling. Appreciate it. Hey, uh, real quick, I want to mention a couple of things. Those of you that hold it, please continue to hold. I'm going to get to everybody. Um, well, okay. You know what? I'll, I'll I'll try and get to at least one more call here. And uh, see, this is the element of randomness that you listen to this show for. We'll we'll, we'll I'll put what I was going to mention uh, aside until next hour. Adrian is on the Upper West Side. Hello, Adrian. Hey. Uh, yeah, I watched the video because it piqued my curiosity, and I I think there's nothing wrong with this. I, I, I agree with what you were saying that it, you know, in European uh, magazines it. it we're not so hung up on this stuff, and they want to be provocative. They're not selling oatmeal; they're selling sexy Italian lingerie. And but but the bigger issue that maybe I'm just seeing this, and it's not re- it's not real. But I, there seems to be a problem with when a woman shows her body. You know, that's a great a point, age, Adrian. I, you know? I was going to mention that if this was an 18 year old man and a 50 year old father, and they were in no. boxer shorts, I don't think anybody. Would be like maybe if they were kissing on the lips, people would be raising uh, an eyebrow or two. But I don't think people would be even writing articles about this. And and you know I have you know my father's family from Italy. The men kiss on the lips. It's no one is and they walk down the street hugging each other. You think the whole? I remember when I first went there, I thought, is everybody gay here? But it's just <laughs> they're affectionate. No, you you're know? right. And, no, in my family and among a lot of my friends, we do the same thing at the Columbus Day Parade on Monday. I've never been kissed so much by men in my life. I may have mono just from all the people that I greeted on uh, on Monday. But with the women's body, just recently, yeah, Paulina Portskova, you know, everyone was upset, making a big deal when she was posing in her under in her bikini. I guess Madonna most recently, uh, some other, I forget that hip hop guy, whatever his name was, made fun of her. You're uh, right, Adrian. Cheryl Crow, Nancy Reagan, when she wore a sleeveless dress. I mean, it's getting ridiculous. Adrian, you're right. There is a different standard when it comes to women, and that's not right. But people are making an issue with this. I felt the need to explore it. Those of you that are holding, we'll get to you in a moment. Still to come, what happened to TWA Flight 800? We'll find out. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Moreno. 
We like to explore mysteries on this program, and uh, I don't think there's been a more serious mystery that has piqued the curiosity of people all over the world, literally, and especially New Yorkers, than uh, the TWA Flight 800 disaster. We're going to get into it with uh, Jack Cashel coming up in about 20 minutes. I've been to the memorial out in Suffolk County. It's still uh, incredibly breathtaking to see all those flags of all those countries of people that died in that airplane. It's very, very sad. We're going to get into it with Jack Cashel. Of much less serious concern is another interesting mystery. It was written about in the New York Post yesterday or today. I don't know what day it was in print. I don't know if it's in print. I think it's in print today. So I read this article yesterday. My wife brought this to my attention. People across the country have been receiving mysterious empty packages in the mail. And experts are blaming, of all things, shenanigans by third-party merchants on Amazon. This is what the New York Post is reporting. A flurry of yellow padded envelopes have landed in residential mailbox across more than 30 states over the last several weeks. That's according to Safely HQ, the consumer reporting website's founder estimates the mystery packages could number as high as 10,000. While recipients mainly have been puzzled, some have expressed alarm, fretting that their names and addresses may have been leaked in a data breach. Some have braced for the worst, speculating that the apparently empty packages might contain something sinister and invisible. Quote, I got outside and ripped the top of the package open and held it away from my face and pinched it open to see no contents inside. One rattled recipient in Florida wrote on this website, Safely HQ, I left it outside and I'm about to dispose of it in the trash receptacle. Many of the empty packages have listed the sender as an online seller at the address of an Amazon warehouse facility. In several cases, 188 South Mountain House Parkway in San Francisco Bay area suburb of Tracy, California. By the way, I'm going to read you more of this in a second, but I'm curious if anyone has gotten one of these. Uh, I certainly have not, but if you have, whether you know what it is or not, I'd be curious to hear from you. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. While that is the address of a legitimate Amazon facility, the packages in question were not mailed from them. That's what Amazon... Representatives told the New York Post. Instead, Amazon officials suggested that the situation had all the hallmarks of a known scam called brushing. This has nothing to do with teeth. In which third-party merchants create fake transactions on the site, complete with tracking numbers and confirmations that the packages have been received. Now you ask yourself, why would they do that? What's the benefit to these third-party sellers of creating these fake transactions? Well, after spending a modest outlay on these phantom mailers, maybe $3 or $4 each, the rogue sellers then create phony customer reviews for little-known products that they're trying to sell. That's according to James Thompson, a former Amazon executive who is now a consultant to online 
sellers. Uh, isn't that bizarre? Quote, if you confirm that the package addressed to you wasn't ordered by you or anyone you know, report the package online by going to the report unwanted package form. That's the word from uh, Amazon spokesman Sam Stevenson. Amazon investigates these reports and takes action when we find bad actors that violate our policies. According to FakeSpot, a service that detects fake reviews, about 42% of Amazon reviews were not written by actual customers. Isn't that interesting? My wife told me before she orders anything from Amazon, she always checks the reviews. And she was, uh, she says you can usually tell the fake reviews, but even she, who's a pretty good consumer with this stuff, she had no idea it was high as 42% of reviews not written by actual customers. The federal government has expressed some concerns about the growing number of fake reviews on all these e-commerce sites, with the Federal Trade Commission vowing to fine Amazon and others if they don't remove them. So in February, a former Amazon consultant was actually sentenced to 10 months in prison and a $50,000 fine for participating in a scheme to bribe Amazon employees and manipulate the company's third-party marketplace. The case is ongoing, and five other defendants are still facing prosecution. So signs of the tactic are reemerging as Amazon sellers gear up for the holiday shopping season, jockeying for the highest placement on the marketplace. And after Amazon clamped down on bad actors who submitted fake shipping data earlier this summer, um, recipients likely ended up on the list as past customers of the seller. It's also possible the the seller simply chose their names and addresses randomly from public records. In some cases, Amazon insiders may have sold Amazon customer information to sellers. For those who receive packages they didn't order, the Better Business Bureau advises they change their online account passwords and keep a close eye on credit card statements and credit reports as it's possible their personal information has been compromised. So I guess, and maybe I'm missing something here. If you can explain this to me, please call in, 800-848-9222. I guess what they do is they send something in the mail, and all told the cost of this sending this parcel is only 3 or $4. It's empty, so it doesn't cost that much to sell. And then because they've confirmed that the parcel was shipped, someone can then enter a fake review onto Amazon for a product that that third-party seller sells. I guess that's how the scam works, um, unless I'm missing something here. So if you know anything about this or if you've been the recipient of one of these envelopes, give me a call, 800-848-9222. It's called brushing. Two years ago, a suspected brushing scam caught the attention of the Department of Agriculture. I remember this. I remember this. After people received mysterious packages of seeds in the mail, that appeared to be from China. I was thinking of doing that, actually. I was thinking, you know, China <clears throat> keeps doing all these nefarious things, and I was thinking maybe we should get some invasive seeds and just start mailing them all over China. Uh, but I figured it's bad karma to do that to anybody, so I, I thought ill of it. I'm also wondering if there's some sort of marketing technique that we can use for this radio show in which we can have our listeners 
mail some propaganda promoting this radio show to people randomly that will help us uh, uh, get some attention. Um, but I, I, nothing really came of it. There was a very good um, PR executive who planted a fake Egyptian uh, relic um, in a taxi cab. And when they translated the hieroglyphics on the relic, they it said, everybody's mummy listens to 1010 wins. Mortimer Matz was his name. Mortimer Matz, a famous PR executive back in the, in the 60s, I think, did that. And it worked. It was an incredible amount of publicity. See, we need something like that. We need some sort of guerrilla marketing tactic where, you know, people plant a tree or plant some seeds that get mysteriously mailed to them. And then another side of midnight tree pops up or something, you know, something like that. We need something creative like that. That is minimal effort, minimal cost, but maximum exposure. Like that Mortimer Matz uh, piece. 800-848-9222. A lot of people very patiently holding. Let me say hello to our friend Neil on Staten Island. Hello there, Neil. Hey, Frank. Uh, I wouldn't be getting uh, too upset about the Heidi Klum thing. Uh, I remember when Brooke Shields did a, a new thing for a Penthouse. And she was, she was just a kid. And her mother, you know, let her do it. Uh, that, that was upsetting. Well, did, uh, I remember there was a lot of controversy about Brooke Shields doing Blue Lagoon. Uh, I didn't realize that she had posed for Penthouse also. But did yeah. Brooke Shields pose with her mom as well? I, I don't remember. I, I remember the pictures of her. I don't remember. You know what? I think there was a picture of her mom there, too. But the mother was clothed. Brooke Shields wasn't clothed. Interesting. Okay, yeah. I didn't, uh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's yeah, also, uh, news to me. Uh, as for the Ambien, one of the side effects is sleepwalking, because my doctor gave me Ambien, and it's not indicated for long-term use. It's only a short-term uh, use thing. Uh, I said, I'm, I said I wouldn't worry about me sleepwalking. There's no way for me to walk around there. So, um, and it worked for a couple of times, but you know, then I, it didn't it didn't help me at all. And uh, finally, so what happened in your case, Neil? So you tried it, it worked, and then what did it wear off or something? No, you got the overnight show. We have to we have to go to the two all night sites. I sleep like a baby in the when it comes to the morning. That's very funny, Neil. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, to your point, my friend Rich, I probably should have given him a fake name, but I don't, I'm not going to use his last name. My friend Rich um, takes some of his wife's Ambien from time to time, and I think they put a stop to this. But my friend Rich would wake up randomly in places. He would sleepwalk. And then wake up in the hallway of their apartment or uh, in their kitchen, lying on the floor. It was very weird, very scary for the two of them. I think that's why they made him stop it. And especially he found if he drank alcohol before taking the Ambien. So I think he's off alcohol and Ambien at the moment. But it, it, I, she would send me photos of, um, you know, and he's a bigger guy. It's tough to move him. So it's, uh, you know, of him waking up in the hallway or being asleep in the hallway randomly. He would take the Sambian, go to sleep, and then sleepwalk down the hallway and or in the kitchen. That's why when folks like Bernard or others would suggest Ambien to me, it was never something that I ever seriously considered. Uh, 800-848-9222. Before we get to Jack Cashel, let me say hello to Andy in Pennsylvania. Hello, Andy. Hey, Frank. How are you? Great. Thank you. 
Um, boy, I enjoy listening to your programs. You're so diversified and uh, very intelligent gentleman. Well, you must have us confused with some other show, Andy, but thank you. <laughs> not at all, Frank. Not at all. Hey, is it too late for me to talk to you about the uh, sleeping habits? Absolutely not, Andy. So, so, talk and sleep all you want. Be my guest. <laughs> okay, Frank, let me tell you a, a little brief story about me. I work at night at home and I deal a lot of business with China and of course you know that their uh, our nighttime is their daytime so I could communicate with them very well but anyway um, I have had a bad habit of only sleeping two or three hours a night and I told my doctor about that and he prescribed uh, medicine for me uh, do you want me to mention it if you want, sure. Okay, it's Zimbalta. Zimbalta, okay. And, uh, and I take uh, one 30-milligram tablet uh, capsule of Zimbalta after dinner, <laughs> which I have at 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And, Frank, now I sleep six or seven hours really? every night. All right. Now, you're not a paid Zimbalta spokesman, are you? Not at all. Okay, good, good, good. good. (laughs) Andy, thank you for listening. I'm glad you're sleeping well. Keep in touch. Call again. Uh, Those of you that are holding, we'll try and get to you. Hey, we're going to talk about TWA Flight 800 in just a moment. What happened? We're going to try and find out. We'll at least give you a couple of theories as to what may have happened. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents... This is Frank's Conspiracy Hour. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. This is a program where we love to explore the unexplained... And dig a little deeper on stories which seem to not make sense to a lot of folks. Now, sometimes there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for why things may not make sense. And sometimes there's just not. In the case of TWA Flight 800, I have heard from so many of you whenever I've raised this on the air that this is a situation that requires a little bit more exposition and needs a little bit more digging. Uh, We are joined this morning by someone who has spent uh, a lot of time and many years and a great deal of effort digging into exactly what happened. Now, if you're a little younger or maybe your memory is a little hazy as to what happened, it was July 17th, 1996, TWA Flight 800, a Boeing 747, was a scheduled international passenger flight from New York to Rome, Italy, with a stopover in Paris. And then uh, about 12 minutes after taking off from JFK Airport, TWA Flight 800 exploded and then crashed into the Atlantic Ocean. Of the 230 passengers and crew on board, no survivors were found making TWA Flight 800 the second deadliest aircraft accident in the United States at that time. Well, the official story was that it was an accident, probably the result of some sort of a mechanical failure. 
And uh, a lot of folks have never really embraced that idea. And a lot of alternative theories have been put forward. We're going to evaluate a few of them with Jack Cashel. He's an author, a blogger, the executive editor of Ingram's Magazine. And he has two books about what happened at, uh, with respect to TWA Flight 800. The most recent book has, been, has gotten a lot of attention over the course of the last six years. It's called TWA 800, The Crash, The Cover-Up, and The Conspiracy. Jack Cashel, thanks for joining me on the radio. Hey, Frank, thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure. So, Jack, uh, what sparked your initial interest in what happened to TWA Flight 800? Were you interested almost immediately, or did you start digging into it a few years later? Actually, it was a few years later, and what happened is I live in Kansas City, and that's the ancestral home of TWA. So there's hundreds of retired people here in active duty. Uh, That is uh, about the year 2000. TWA was still on its last legs. And I went to hear a talk about by this guy named James Sanders and his wife, Elizabeth, who did the original investigation, independent investigation into the crash. And I went out to dinner with him afterwards with a bunch of people. And I was sitting next to Elizabeth Sanders. She had been a trainer for TWA and a flight attendant. Sweetest, nicest, Philippine-American, uh, you know, pretty innocent. And then she's telling me her story and that she and her husband are arrested for conspiracy because Jim, who's an investigative reporter, uh, tried to look into TWA Flight 800. And I'm hearing this story. Well, I mean, I knew about the crash, but I didn't pay much attention. This is four years after the fact. And I can't believe that this is going on. Uh, And so then, you know, at that time, I was mostly making documentaries. And I, uh, the next morning, I went out to breakfast with the Sanders. And I said, has anyone made a documentary about what you're doing? And they said, no. And I said, listen, I'm not interested in a, uh, like a conspiracy theory. I only, I'm only interested in doing a documentary. If you can prove to me uh, beyond the shadow of doubt that what your thesis is is actually true, then we could talk. And they said, well, come down to Florida where we live. Let's review the material. And then, you know, after you've had a chance to review it, uh, we, can, we can go from there. And so in the interval, I read the two mainstream books on uh, – TWA Flight 800. One was by a CNN reporter named Christine Negroni. Another was an AP reporter named Pat Milton. Both of them totally discounted everything the Sanders said. It was a a fuel tank accident. Uh, The witnesses didn't see anything, blah, blah, blah. So I go to Florida, now very skeptical. And then I start reading uh, what the Sanders had accumulated, and that was the eyewitness testimony. Uh, There were 250 people who saw a missile hit that airplane. Mm. Uh, off the coast of Long Island, something like 56 people followed the missile from the surface, watched it ascend, watched it zigzag as it corrected its course, and watched the plane break in half. Uh, And these are people uh, who were, you know, other airline uh, pilots, uh, not airline pilots, pilots, uh, military people, helicopter pilots, people, sophisticated people who knew something about what they were seeing. And then I, you know, as I got into it, I could see how this happened, how, and and at first it blows your mind because you can't believe. Now, today we're a little more skeptical of the FBI and, you know, the the, uh, the way the government works. But in in the year 2000, 2001, I was pretty naive. You know, I I was a phone friend of Ephraim Zimbush Jr., Mr. FBI. You know, it's like I was was very trusting. My father was a cop. And... uh, 
you know, and I, I'm from that area, so I had certain interest in it, uh, and from the New York area. And as I got into it, though, I I began to see that the real culprit here, uh, you know, the governments, when they screw up, the Navy, when they screw up, they have a history of running and then handing out medals and telling each other to shut up. The government, and, you know, you have a re-election year in 1996 when this happened, had a vested interest in keeping this all quiet. The New York Times had no interest. Had no, the New York Times is the entity that most thoroughly betrayed its mission by participating in this cover-up. Uh, well, well, I want to get back to the New York Times aspect of things um, in just a second. The The missile theory is sort of one of the three main theories that have been with us from the beginning, I think in part because of the eyewitness anecdotes that you that you just cited. The other ones were were bomb and obviously the one that the FBI and the NTSB ultimately subscribed to, which was a mechanical failure, an explosion of flammable fuel and or air vapors in a fuel tank, most likely from a short circuit. Uh, Before we get to the missile theory, why is the official story that mechanical failure led to uh, this sort of an explosion? What evidence is there to suggest that that's not accurate? Well, you know, in the history of jet A fuel, which I became sort of standard probably at least 50 years ago, there had never been a midair self-combustion explosion of any major airline, let alone a 747. In the 25 years since, there's not been another one. So it was a like a, a uniquely anomalous event, a uniquely anomalous event when hundreds of people were seeing an object descending towards the plane, uh, when the radar was picking up uh, the uh, of the missile, when video had been made and aired on MSNBC that first night for a couple of hours before the FBI seized it. Uh, so all of the evidence, you know, I don't buy into conspiracy theories easily. To me, unless there's an overwhelming logic, unless all evidence points in the same direction, then you just have a bunch of anomalies. Okay, Building 7 falls down on, you know, September 11th. Uh, that's an anomaly. I, you know, you find me a logic for that larger, to fit into a bigger picture. But with Spite 800, every single uh, variable pointed in the direction of a uh, missile attack on the uh, aircraft. In terms of the theory that we heard a great deal of at the time, that it was a bomb of some sort, why is there that a faulty theory for the people that buy into that aspect of it? Well, it never made sense in the first place. What happened is on day one and day two, there was real talk of missile. That's all anyone was talking about. And you can go back and check the New mm-hmm. York media at that time. Uh, and then the FBI got involved, and they were steered away. You know, we got a hold of these CIA documents from my 2016 book. I mean, the real legitimate documents through Freedom of Information Act. And uh, the FBI took over the investigation illegally on day one from NTSB, but they did it publicly. What we learned behind the scenes is that the CIA took it over from the FBI on day one, uh, covertly. But what what the CIA document says, you have the analyst uh, bragging about how the head of the FBI missile team had said that there were 144 excellent eyewitnesses to a missile attack on the plane, and he bragged how he got them to suppress that information. And what the FBI did then, because they had to come up with some explanation, and there was explosive residue all over the plane from the, uh, from the missile blast, 
is they came up with a bomb theory because it was less mm. scary mm. than a missile. You know, bombs you could check for. You could have dogs. You could do things. This, By the way, this crash takes place two days before the start of the Atlanta Olympics. So there's mm. high anxiety. I mean, if, if it was a missile attack on the airplane, you'd really have to shut down aviation over the, you know, the East Coast. That would have been disastrous in any which way. And uh, so the bomb thing, and that's what the New York Times runs with. So as late as uh, August 23rd, now we're five weeks after the crash, they run a headline above the fold. Prime evidence found that the device, uh, explosive device in cabin destroys TW-800, right? And then within a month, they made all of that go away. All of that explosive residue, all of that, all those headlines, you know, all went away. In the meantime, uh, the New York Times of the, there was something like 244 eyewitnesses to uh, a missile strike who saw one way or another. I mean, not the explosion after the fact, but saw an object hit the plane. The New York Times interviewed exactly zero of those people. Wow. You know, I've talked to 20, 30, 40 of them. I mean, they're, they're out there. They wanted to testify. And some of them become my good friends because they were, you know, they've been frustrated by their, the way they were treated in the course of this. Uh, and then when you get into it, uh, Frank, you see that the, the CIA really took this over. I, I've been in communication with the head of the FBI missile team, and he was a good guy, uh, and he was silenced. Uh, and the dynamics behind the scene are uh, could be unraveling soon, thanks to a very, very serious lawsuit that's hmm. been filed in Massachusetts. Talking with Jack Cashel, he is the author of the book TWA 800, The Crash, the Cover-Up, and the Conspiracy. In terms of where this missile came from, when I've looked at the missile theory over the years, a lot of the people that put this forward, they seem to fall into one of two camps, either that this was due to a Navy missile test that went wrong or a Navy missile test that went awry, or that this could have been some sort of a terrorist missile strike. Does your research lead you to either of those conclusions or something else? Well, you know, my instinct was uh, I wanted it. Once I, I, it dawned on me that it was a missile strike, I would much have preferred it to be a terrorist missile, right? I would much have preferred to believe that our Navy couldn't have done something that reckless. However, I will tell you this, Frank. I mean, now I will tell you this with 99% confidence that our Navy uh, accidentally shot down the airplane. And do you think that's the reason that the FBI, the CIA, maybe the NTSB then participated in a cover up to get to conceal the true cause of this this missile attack? I think there are two reasons why they uh, for the cover up, the ostensible reason and the reason that would have been shared with those people who had to know. And we're talking about a real small number of people is that this is a top-secret exercise. We cannot let the enemy know that we screwed up, that it, we're vulnerable to these kind of air attacks. And it was just five years later uh, that the thing that the, the Navy was exercising against, that is an aerial attack on New York, came to pass. So it was not an Ill- illegitimate fear. Mm. There, was a, there was a legitimate reason for them to be running these exercises in a crowded airspace because that's where the attack would come as it did on September 11th. Um, that's, the, that's the message that would have gone out to the serious people uh, who, who knew but weren't allowed to know. So the key, but there's a different sorry, message, too. There's a secondary message, 
And that was the message coming out of the White House. And that is, we've got an election to win in November, sort of like with um, Benghazi in 2012. Let's just kick this can down the road past November and hope for the best. But then when a new administration comes in uh, five years later, and then a new administration comes in after that eight years later, and another new administration comes in uh, four years after that, why would a subsequent administration uh, that might have political adversaries in it uh, versus the Clinton administration, why would they not have rushed at the opportunity to reopen the investigation and pin the blame on the folks that were in charge back in 1996? Well, no, that's a good question. Uh, I would say that what I've seen over time is that uh, subsequent administrations, especially the ones that are friendly with the ones that preceded it, just as the Bushes and the Clintons and the Obamas have been all friendly with each other. Trump was the wild card. Up until then, uh, you know, they were all cozy. They were all part of the same establishment. Uh, they they weren't going to expose a, a national security disaster on the watch of their predecessor. Uh, and Basically, they, you know, it's the way they play. And, okay, I get it, I suppose. And I'm not even sure they knew. I'm not even sure that, that, say, George Bush knew the truth about Flight 800. I doubt if he did. And But it leads to things like, you know, Sandy Berger's pilfering documents during the 9-11 hearings. Some, some people in this were playing hardball and some were playing softball. And uh, unfortunately, the, up until Trump, the Republicans tended to play softball. You um, you talk about the the handling of this investigation. I think the the public face of this investigation for a lot of people was uh, the former assistant director of the FBI, James Calstrom. I knew uh, Mr. Calstrom a little bit uh, before he passed away. He would come on frequently on the radio to talk about uh, all sorts of issues. You, I guess, give him pretty poor marks for his handling of this investigation. Yeah, you know, and it's odd because, uh, and this is a kind of an oddly funny story, but in 2016, and you, you've talked to him enough to know that he hated the Clintons. You know, he wasn't like a Clinton. Well, well exactly. That, that was my next question. You anticipated my next question. What, you know, almost every conversation that we had, he would, he would just kill Hillary Clinton. Why right. would he have saved the bacon of the Clinton administration? Well, that, that question, that bugged me, too. So what I did is I, I, I had a private detective friend of mine, private investigator, get a hold of his address before the election of 2016. I sent him a registered letter. And then I voted absentee, and to avoid all the hubbub of the election, I went to, to France for a few weeks, and I was in Nice on the French Riviera, right? I'm sitting out there one night, and I get a call. And I had not talked to Calvin before. He'd always have ducked my calls, and I'd heard he was a profane bully, and he totally lived up to his reputation. So he starts F-bombing me all over the place. And just because he calls me, right? And I said, I said, you know, and the point of my letter was, I said, Jim, when, when family members see you on TV— and they see you bashing Clinton, uh, they're beside themselves. And why not just tell the truth about Flight 800, right? And then it gets really weird. I, at the time, I, I, you know, I already drank, too. I don't know if that's true. And he was dying of cancer, probably. But uh, he, his self, uh, his, uh, the, the, the state of denial that he was in astonished me. At one point, he says to me, are you trying to tell me, it's like he never heard this before, that a terrorist missile took down the plane? And I said to him, Jim, I wish I were telling you that. I'd rather tell you that. But after looking this, years I looked at it, unfortunately, it's our Navy that shot down the plane. Then he goes totally ballistic on me, F-bomb, 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 F-bomb. And then he says, 
And this is where it's ironic and funny. He says, you sound just like Pierre effing Salinger. This is JFK's legendary sure. press secretary, former U.S. senator. He says, right after the election in 96, he holds a press conference on the effing French Riviera saying that the Navy shot down our airplane, you know? And I said, I'm sitting there thinking, thank God he doesn't know where I am. <laughs> you know, he'd, <laughs> he'd be convinced there was some massive French conspiracy to uh, undo our uh, national security. But the plane was going to Paris, and there were a lot of French people involved, and I've talked to a lot of their parents. And the French media t- took it a whole lot more seriously than our media did, I can tell you that. Well, we're talking with uh, Jack Cashel about uh, the incident of TWA Flight 800, what happened there, and what a lot of people have always believed, that, that there was something other than a mechanical failure which led to the explosion of that plane. If you want to learn more about uh, Jack's work, you could go to his website, Cashel.com, that's C-A-S-H-I. LL.com. He's written a lot of books, not only on this subject, but a variety of other subjects as well. Jack, one of the things that's interesting about the TWA Flight 800 situation is that there seems to never have been wide swaths of the population that bought into the official story. Almost from the get-go, folks were skeptical about the official story that the government put out. In your conversations with the family members of the victims, does the skepticism of the victims' families mirror the skepticism of the public at large, or are they a little more willing or a little less willing to accept the government's official story? You know, I would say this. I haven't talked to all the family members. The ones I talk to are the ones who are skeptical of the government's uh, theory and are very skeptical and angry still. Uh, there are a lot of people who bought it. You know, I don't know what the psychology is. If you lose a loved one, and the last thing you want to do is fight with your government. But I will tell you this, the people who are most skeptical uh, are the aviators, uh, the pilots, the engineers, the mechanics. And I've talked to, I I talk to TWA groups all the time, retired TWA people. I have not met the TWA person who buys the government theory. Hmm. When they saw, when anyone in the aviation or engineering business or military saw the CIA's animated uh, recreation of of their fuel tank explosion thesis, they laughed. They thought it was ludicrous because what you see in the animation is that the plane blows up spontaneously, breaks in half, the nose falls off, and then the the plane somehow shoots up 3,500 feet without a nose. You know, when in fact it would, you know, all the weight would have, you know, fallen to the tail and and after maybe like a, a brief upsurge, it would have you know, uh, falling like a, a leaf in, uh, you know, in October into the ground. Um, they said it was ludicrous. You could talk to 100 engineers. I've, I've heard from literally scores of people from Boeing. I've talked to literally hundreds of, uh, of uh, airline pilots, military people, and no one buys it. No one. There's a few people who have to put a front on and, you know, play, you know, I don't know, you never know, it could be blah, blah, blah. But no one buys There was a documentary about uh, nine years ago called TWA Flight 800, and the the gist of that documentary was similar to what you're saying, that this was a missile strike that had downed the airliner. Uh, the person that, uh, that made that, I think, was actually a physicist, clearly a, a guy that knows a thing or two about uh, aeronautics, not some uh, wide-eyed optimist who is naive to these kinds of things. Did you happen to see that documentary, and what was your take on the conclusions they came to in it? Yes, I did. I was not involved in it, but I know that uh, 
the producers. Uh, one was Tom Stalkup, the physicist in question, who's been working on this from day one. I mean, he was in, in, in on the years before I got involved. And the other one is Christina Borgeson, who is the producer at CBS, who lost her job uh, at CBS uh, because she uh, tried to get this story on the air years ago. I mean, like mm. the, the year after it happened. And uh, it's an excellent documentary. It's called, I believe it's called TWA Flight 800. Tom Stalkup, who is a really diligent, brilliant, no-nonsense, apolitical guy, has been working on this through the Freedom of Information Act. And um, he has a, uh, a lawsuit out now that they launched this summer with the family members uh, that is shockingly precise and sophisticated in its accusations against the uh, uh, essentially against the, uh, the the various parties involved, which includes Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, as well as you know the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy. And he doesn't waste any time. He gets right into it. The central argument is this. He goes, quote, after the incident, the federal government released a false report contending that the explosion was the result of an electrical fire in the airplane center. And then he goes on to say the real cause, the suit, the suit uh, he says in the suit, was, quote, an errant United States missile fired at aerial target drones mm-hmm. flying nearby. I, I'm, I don't, I'm not in communication with Slocka, but his work has been really impressive uh, and I totally agree with him obviously we're gonna see where that uh, where that lawsuit goes from your perspective what would you like to see happen would you like to see this investigation be reopened you know I would like to see the truth come out uh, if they reopen this investigation seriously they could have it resolved in a month mm. Mm. I mean all the information all the evidence points in one direction they know that and um, you know the, the, they spent four years uh, previously, uh, the NTSB did to come up with uh, just some plausible scenario. And Stalkup, who's the young, he was a graduate student at the time, and the video is available. Those who want to see the NTSB hearing, he's sitting out in the back, and it's kind of funny in a way, but he is uh, the, the guy, uh, the NTSB uh, representative is talking about what the eyewitnesses saw and how they were all confused, et cetera. And then you hear someone in the back yell out, Ask the eyewitnesses. <laughs> you know, uh, none of the eyewitnesses, and these include military pilots, uh, you know, fishermen, uh, pilots of other airplanes, uh, passengers on other airplanes, was allowed to testify. Wow! Uh, and that tells you just about all you need to know. Last question, and then I'll, I'll let you get to bed. And uh, I appreciate you being so generous with your time. We've been talking to Jack Cashill. He has two books on the uh, TWA Flight 800 incident. One is called First Strike, and the sequel to that, which uh, delves even further down this rabbit hole, is called TWA 800 Crash, Cover-Up, Conspiracy. Whenever you know how cynical I think, Jack, uh, that talk radio listeners can be, and yes. New York talk radio listeners take that to a whole new level. And I know there are going to be folks calling in seconds and emailing me for days questioning your motives, essentially saying, well, look, there's a lot of money to be made if you write books and you make documentaries and you go on podcasts and radio shows saying that the official story is flawed. What do you say to those folks, Jack, who may be saying that you're trying to push an alternative narrative so that you could be the beneficiary of increased publicity or increased book sales or anything like that? 
Well, first of all, I used to work in advertising. Uh, that's where the money was <laughs> in, my, in my current occupation. No, I also went to high school in New York City. I grew up in the area. I know those people well. I would say to them this, go out to Suffolk County and talk to anyone, right? Especially talk to the uh, Suffolk County Police, the Suffolk County Marine Patrol. Those were the only straight shooters involved in this whole investigation. The people who are listening on Long Island know exactly what I'm talking about. You're not going to find many people on Long Island saying, oh, Jack, what's he just making this stuff up? They know. They've heard the stories from their own. They know the eyewitnesses. They've talked to people who've seen this and been involved and had their, you know, all these mysterious things happening around them. They're the best people of all to talk to. Jack, it is a real treat to talk with you. I hope we can do this again soon. Hey, Frank, uh, thanks for giving me the time. It's uh, it's a real treat. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, agree, disagree, further questions, whatever the case may be, uh, let us have it. 800-848-9222. This is 800-848-9222. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They paid paradise and put up a parking lot With a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot This is the Counting Crows, Big Yellow Taxi. Uh, If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on our program, you can uh, go join our Facebook group. We uh, We post all the songs that we play there on a daily basis. Uh, just uh, search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. It's also meant to be a platform for people to talk about what's happening on this show. You know, there's always a couple of smart Alex that denigrate everything that I do, and that's fine. I, I would I'm glad they're listening. They're welcome to denigrate everything that I do as long as they listen. It's one of the ra- reason that the um, ratings, I think, have been so good is that we're welcoming feedback. F- uh, we're welcoming listeners that love the show and the listeners that hate it, as long as they listen. God bless you. Um, and so. One of the people that responded to uh, one of the folks that was heckling me yesterday in the Facebook group was Joe Ganascoli, who played uh, Vito Spadafora on The Sopranos. He's been a guest on this show several times. I know he listens regularly, usually in the last hour of the show. So that's probably why he was responding so, to some comments I made in the last hour of the show. But um, it's so funny because Joe's been on the show before. And he's always been very good about sharing on social media what he's doing and everything. And he's participating in one of these discussions. And one of the guys says, uh, is that really you? Are you really him? And Joe basically says, well, let me check. Let me look in the mirror. Yes, it's me. And then the guy shoots back at him essentially a trivia question um, asking where he lived in 1990s. And all I'm thinking is this is Joe Ganascoli's reward for trying to stick up for what we're doing and against the snarkmeisters that dominate the Facebook group is that he gets to be questioned about whether he's actually in. So, Joe, if you're listening, sorry about that. But uh, I will say the solution to beating back the snarkmeisters, I think, is to have more 
regular people who are interested in a meaningful conversation join the Facebook group so eventually those voices get drowned out. Uh, So if you want to join them, uh, just search on Facebook, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. All right. Uh, Hey, by the way, speaking of social media, I posted on there an interview that I did with my friend Matthew Mary. Matthew Mary is one of the great criminal defense attorneys of all time. He has been a guest on this show, and he now does a YouTube show all about organized crime issues. And he was kind enough to come on my podcast, The Racket Report, so I felt that one good turn deserves another. I went on his, uh, A View from Mulberry Street. Here's a, a portion of our conversation in which we talk about how nearly impossible it is for certain criminal defendants to get a fair trial. My first question is, are there any of these so-called mob cases that stand out to you as being unfair? You know, you know, if you've looked at all my podcasts, I guess you get the drift about what I'm trying to say about the federal criminal justice system. Well, uh, first of all, there are many. You know, I, I think anybody that I've covered a lot of trials, not just mob trials, but uh, any case that ends up going to trial these days, you as a criminal defense attorney, Maddie, know how rare it is to see a case even go to trial. So I think all the cases that end up going to trial end up being pretty rare and pretty special, because if they weren't rare, if they weren't special in some way, they would end with a, a plea agreement or something like that. But let me answer the second question first, and then I'm going to kind of work backwards. Um, one of the things that I've seen in mob cases is, with respect to unfairness, is that they're all unfair. I- I've never seen any variety of criminal defendant, not bank robbers, not uh, rank and file hoodlums, not Arab terrorists, treated the way that members of La Cosa Nostra are, are treated. So that's uh, a portion of our discussion. If you want to see the whole thing, I've linked to it on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Fan. But uh, I'm hoping that we can make this the most watched episode he's ever done uh, because he's had some very high-profile episodes, and I would love for this to be the most watched. All right, 800-848-9222. Mike is in Queens. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank. I was listening to you about the uh, the, uh, Flight 800 thing, and it it brought back memories of a story I covered years ago, which was uh, Malaysian Airways Flight 370, which was another strange... Oh, sure, sure. That was... was, um, that was around 2014, uh, right? 2014. Um, I covered it for, for Fox at that time. Uh, if you remember, I'm one of the blind guys who emails you. For, yes, uh, thank occasion. you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, so, so uh, there were parallels made by people, you know, in the search missions because I got on a couple of planes that flew out of a, a certain part of the Philippines called Palau, and we flew over the South China Sea until they finally figured out it wasn't there, you know. And some of these other people uh, who were, you know, U.S. Navy, uh, there were people from from other, uh, you know, air forces that were coming in because everybody was helping. The Australians were helping. Everybody was helping trying to find this plane. And it uh, was not so much what they said, but what they didn't really say but implied was many in the military were saying, is this another, you know, TW-800? Uh, could somebody have made a mistake because the Chinese have islands in the South China Sea? Could, you know, that kind of thing has happened. That was the theory at the time, and they were that—that that was their speculation because the Chinese have these, you know, islands they were building in, in, in reefs, and they said apparently there's some kind of missile that basically is called a, a RAM, 
which is a close-in air defense weapon system. And it could have had a mistake. It could have had an error. And uh, that was the theory they had and why they were drawing comparisons to Malaysian Airways 370 and TWA 800. Uh, Interesting. An observation I heard and saw. I couldn't report it on air. I wouldn't have gotten paid. <laughs> you know, the foreign desk over Fox is pretty strict about that kind of stuff. But uh, when um, uh, when I was working and when I did do that, in fact, my reports, I think, are still online. You can still find them over, over on the uh, Fox servers. Um, and, you know, I was just a freelancer. just a guy they call, you know, whenever they needed a story. If it wasn't them, it would be some other network that called me. Uh, you guys never called me though. But internet, that's hey, I, 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 but, I've uh, never been in charge of making hiring uh, hiring decisions, Mike. Believe me. <laughs> no, don't worry about it. But that's my theory. There is is it could have been something very similar. You know, mistakes happen. I'm not saying that's what happened. You know, but there's you know uh, there's many possibilities in this world that we don't know about and won't know about probably for another twenty thirty years. So what? there's documents sealed. There's reports sealed. The easiest way, though, to verify and check would be to look at ship's logs. Uh, you know, if, if there was a U.S. naval vessel or there was an, uh, an allied naval vessel, remember that the Canadians also transit that area, the French transit that area. Uh, other navies uh, come and visit the port of New York and, and, and uh, you know, all these things. There's submarines that also have anti-air systems. And sometimes they, they do things called um, calibration where they, you know, they take an object and they calibrate their systems on it. And sometimes mistakes happen. This is true, Mike. And this is true. Mike, thank you for the call. Uh, And email me if there's any guests that you'd suggest on the Flight 370 situation. Uh, I'd love your recommendation on them. Thank you, Mike. I know actually, you know who wrote a good book about that is George Norrie. George Norrie wrote a very good book with Richard Belzer called Someone is Hiding Something. What happened to Malaysia Airlines Flight 370? Uh, but uh, so I don't preclude the fact that there may have been some similarities. Those of you that are holding, uh, we'll get to you after the top of the hour. And uh, coming up in about a half hour, two weeks ago, we did an interview exploring nonpartisan elections in Atlantic City, but really could apply to any city in the whole country. Now the opposition wants a crack at it, and we're going to give it to them. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We're going to get your calls in just a moment. Any subject is fair game. Uh, next hour, we're going to be joined by Brian Kilmeade. We'll break down some of the uh, issues in the news that people are fired up about, including a debate which is vexing commentators all over the country, radio, television, you name it. When we're talking about Kanye West, his new name, what is it? Is it Yay or is it Ye? There's a big debate about it. I'm going to get Kilmeade to weigh in. A bunch of other things we're going to get to. You know what my favorite thing to do, though, is? It is to get people out of prison who are innocent. That is my favorite thing. And uh, if you're in prison, by the way, and you're innocent, write to me. We'll get you out of prison. Uh, We'll try anyway. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. 
a, a case that has gotten a great deal of attention all over the country, in fact, all over the world, is this case of Adnan Syed. Adnan Syed was the... See, this is the thing. It's funny. If you ever if you watch that show that I like, Only Murders in the Building, one of the things they say towards the end of the first season is a police officer calls a podcast host and says, I can't believe this is how we solve crimes now. And yet it is. Adnan Syed was the subject of season one of Serial. Serial, not anything to do with the breakfast food. Serial, the podcast that had to do with true crime. Adnan Syed has been cleared of charges in the 1999 murder of his ex-girlfriend, Hay Min Lee. It's now official. They are not going to put him on trial again. He's home free. This is after new DNA evidence emerged in this case. The Baltimore State Attorney's Office said a years-long investigation revealed that Syed had been wrongfully convicted of strangling and killing Lee and that new DNA tests showed he was not involved in Lee's death. By the way, um, Syed maintained his innocence while in prison for nearly 25 years, but his case got a massive boost from the podcast, Serial. So you can bet uh, he is going to, since they're not going to prosecute him again, he's going to make millions. Not only from a civil suit with the city, which they will definitely settle with him on, which you don't have to pay taxes on, but he is going to make money as an author doing appearances. He is not that that makes up for losing 25 years of your life. If he is, in fact, innocent, and there's some people that actually do doubt that, but I'm not, you know, I'm all for getting people out of prison if they're innocent. But if he is actually innocent, that doesn't make up for 25 years while you're in the prime of your life, gone. So he deserves every penny of that. So more than a decade after Syed was sent to prison, Rabia Chaudhry, who's a Baltimore-based lawyer and a family friend of the Syeds, emailed a journalist named Sarah Koenig and asked her to reinvestigate Lee's murder. That email helped launch the first season of the podcast, Serial, The show premiered in the fall of 2014, and each episode tried to piece together a timeline of what happened the night Lee was killed. Now, who was Heyman Lee? That's the question at the heart of Serial. Ms. Koenig, who became world famous because of the work with Serial, she says, for the past year, I've spent every working day trying to figure out where a high school kid was for an hour after school one day in 1999. That's what she says in the first episode. Only now the kids she interviewed were adults and some of their stories had changed. And as each episode revealed new details and potential new suspects, internet sleuths and armchair detectives sprang into action and argued their theories on social media. Within months, the chatter around Syed's case would ultimately help him win a new trial. So it's pretty interesting. Here is the Baltimore City State's Attorney, Marilyn Mosby, who, by the way, and this is what's so great about Baltimore and why it's the perfect city for us to be airing in. It's so mixed up. It's so upside down over there. The prosecutor in Baltimore, Marilyn Mosby, is herself under indictment. You know, Cindy Adams loves to say only in New York, kids, only in New York. Well, only in Baltimore, kids, only in Baltimore. The fundaments of The criminal justice system should be based on fair and just prosecution. And the crux of the matter is that we are standing here today because that wasn't done 23 years ago. 
Although my administration was not responsible for neither the pain inflicted upon Heyman Lee's family, nor was my administration responsible for the wrongful conviction of Mr. Saeed, as a representative of the institution, it is my responsibility to acknowledge and to apologize to the family of Heyman Lee and Adnan Saeed. So now Adnan Saeed is free. And Serial helped ignite the popularity of podcasts, not just true crime podcasts, but podcasts in general. And I love it because uh, there's a lot of very good podcasts out there. I listened to several of them. And even though I forget who it was, um, maybe it was Tom Likas or someone else, some a seasoned radio professional that I spoke to recently who said that um, who disagreed with me. But I asked the question, are podcasts of today where radio was talk radio 30 or 40 years ago, meaning a a forum for people to be creative, a forum for people to do exciting things, uh, a forum for people to discover new things. And I think it was Lycus. Lycus said no. He didn't see it that way at all. I kind of do. And most of the radio listening that I do is terrestrial radio. I do listen to a little uh, satellite radio. And then I listen to some podcasts as well. But there's not enough hours in the day for me to listen to everything that I want to listen to. I do think that uh, podcasts are where a lot of the energy is, including our own. Uh, We do a couple of great podcasts, including the podcast version of this show. But uh, I give credit to Ms. Koenig for getting Saeed out of jail. I don't think, I honestly believe this, this is not shtick, I don't think he would have gotten out of prison but for this podcast. Um... I want to get to your calls on TWA Flight 800 in a second, but I first have to bring this to your attention in a similar vein. A New York City rapper turned himself in for murder 13 years ago. Now, listen to this. Listen to this. This isn't only in New York, kids. Only in New York. Now, his prosecutor wants him freed. You heard me correctly. No one would have known that Travell Coleman killed someone in 1993 if he hadn't have walked into an East Harlem police precinct 17 years later and told them he did. Now, more than a decade into his prison sentence, the very prosecutor who argued to put Coleman behind bars... And the judge who sentenced him are both asking Governor Kathy Hochul to release him. His case may serve as a litmus test for this governor who has pledged to reform the state's clemency process while she's up for election. Um, This is a he's serving 15 years to life, by the way. Here's a small portion of Travell Coleman's confession. He like grabbed the gun. And uh, it was kind of like a struggle, and I pulled the gun, pulled the gun back from him, and uh, then I fired, I fired um, three times. Now, um, if you look at what was happening in this man's life in 1993, he had dropped out of college and was living in East Harlem, trying to make it as a rapper and selling drugs to get by. In a personal statement attached to his clemency application, Coleman wrote 
that he had bought a pistol because that was what all the drug dealers in the neighborhood seemed to do. That night, he tried to rob a man standing alone beneath the elevated train tracks on Park Avenue when the man resisted. Coleman fired three shots and fled. He didn't know if the man had lived or died. So he wrote in his statement, did he live? Was he just wounded? Or did I kill someone? This was something I would wrestle with for the next 17 years. For a while, Coleman tried to put those questions out of his mind. His rap career took off. He signed a $350,000 contract with Bad Boy Entertainment. He and Sean P. Diddy Combs even appeared in music videos together. But Coleman couldn't escape what he had done. For years, he struggled with addiction, cycling in and out of court and in and out of jail for nonviolent charges mostly related to to drugs. Then, in 2010, he walked into a police precinct and told detectives everything he could remember about the shooting. Police went through the precinct's logbook and found an unsolved homicide case that matched Coleman's story. And he was charged. In 2012, he was convicted of second-degree murder. The jury foreman asked the judge to be lenient. So did the prosecutor. David Drucker, the assistant Manhattan district attorney, said at sentencing, he appears to have no ulterior motive and nothing to gain by coming forward other than within himself. That should be a very significant factor the court takes into account in sentencing him. The judge gave Coleman the minimum sentence, which was 15 years to life. Um. His ex-wife, Crystal Sutton, said, quote, I was like on the verge of a nervous breakdown. When he first went in, I didn't know what to do. So I was actually going to clubs, making DJs play his music. And the ex-wife also remembers crying on the floor for days after the trial, unable to eat. She had two little boys to raise while their dad was hundreds of miles away in state prison. For weeks, they only ate beefaroni because that was all I could muster the strength to do. I still had to go to work. I still had to make sure I picked them up, took them to school, and picked them up from school and did all of that. So Tyler and Travell Sutton Coleman were little kids when their dad confessed. Now they're 19 years old, older than their father was when he killed someone. And they respect his decision to turn himself in, but they wish that it didn't mean that they'd have a childhood Without a father. So now um, the prosecutor and the judge are asking for clemency here. His clemency attorney, Steve Zeidman, was on WNYC talking about the fact that the very prosecutor that put him in jail, prison, is asking for him to be let out. Came out of completely out of the blue. And I can tell you from doing clemency work for a number of years, that has never happened. Every case I've ever worked on, every case I've ever heard anybody work on for clemency, it's generated by the person inside or their family. So to get a request like this from the prosecutor was um, unique. So we'll see what Governor Hochul does here. It's certainly going to be very interesting. 800-848-9222. We'll talk nonpartisan elections coming up in 10 minutes. Dan is on Long Island. Hello, Dan. Yes. Hi. Good evening. Um, I was calling up about the flight 800 sure go ahead and catch your commenter i live on long island where it happened off the coast and i went on the internet and i was checking it all out last year i got really into it 
And I was convinced also that a missile went up to it. But then as I read more and I studied more, I found that there was a big problem with the Boeing center fuel tanks. There was another Boeing plane that actually exploded on the runway. And the problem is when the plane's up in the air, there's, it's almost in a vacuum. And the whole thing's pressurized. So when that tank had a problem, a small explosion in the tank can cause the whole plane to explode or break apart due to the pressure that's in the plane. And um, when the plane was built in the 70s, they used a much heavier fuel that was less environmentally friendly, but it would not explode or go off when it was vaporized. It's easy. And the problem is that fuel tank gets very hot because they have air conditioning that's venting hot condenser um, cooling into the tank, which is a really bad design. So now they actually pump inert gas in to prevent a fuel tank explosion like that. Um, I have a YouTube channel, Ben's Products, like Mercedes Benz. And I'm actually going to do a detailed video about this uh, Flight 800. So, Dan, it sounds like um, you, you believe that the missile strike theory is an inaccurate one. You go for mechanical failure. Well... <laughs> I was thinking originally about the missile strike and the possibilities of it. But the thing is, if that center fuel tank exploded due to vapors in it and electrical problems, because the plane was very old, um, what would happen is the nose of the plane would crack off where the tank was in the middle of the wing. They were running the engines off wing tanks to make the middle of the plane very light. So the engines could have kept running off the wing tanks. And with the nose broken off, that would cause the plane to go straight up hmm. the weight shift. And then it probably disintegrated. That's my fear. Right. Hey, uh, Dan, give us your YouTube uh, channel again, Ben's, B-E-N's. Products. Uh, Ben's products. Okay. And it's like Mercedes Benz. Well, we'll we will check it and out, then, Dan. Thanks for calling. Keep yeah, us posted in the, in when the that next... interview, when that uh, special it, on Flight 800 airs. Yeah, definitely. Will do. In the next month or two, I want to do that. Great. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate that. Very thoughtful guy. I like that. You know, doesn't seem irrational. 800-848-9222. Ina is in Manhattan. Hello, Ina. Hello, Frank. Thank you very much for taking my call. Sure. That theory is is nothing. I saw the missile. I was living in Coney Island. I live on the tenth floor, and my 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 building is between Surfed Avenue and 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 uh, and Surfed Avenue, and the the, the 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 missile came right from the sea. It came from the sea, like it go over. Seagate is the last is the last last stop. It go over all the building, a big missile, 
And I said, look at that missile. And then I turned, the TV was on, and then the news came that it hit, it hit TWA. Now, my brother works with TWA. He's a, a leading mechanic for TWA. We travel on TWA all the time. It's the best airline, the best service and everything. And then and when I, when I, I, I saw the, the video, oh, it hit the side of the plane, and it came split in two. And um, I called, so I called. I know he works night. I called. But I called him and I didn't get I didn't get him I didn't get him at his house I didn't have his cell phone number so um, I saw that missile and I called I called nine one one and they came and they, and they came to the to, to the house my window is 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 a big window it's from corner to corner on the tenth floor in the living room and I told them what I told them what I saw. And they said I mustn't say anything. So I thought they they would investigate. It, it, you know that would come out because if they had call, call go ahead and and go take the helicopter or the boat and go right to the sea, they would see see where it comes from because it has to come from a ship or or a boat down there. It was a big missile and fly high over the building. All right. Well, look, uh, uh, there seems to be a lot of eyewitnesses that saw exactly what you saw, Ina. So I'll be honest with you. That's kind of where I am. Uh, I was I approached this open minded and uh, I recognize and there's a lot of people I respect on both sides of the issue. I'm going to dig further into this in future shows. But I think your um, your eyewitness account counts for a lot in my book. Thank you, Ina. 800-848-9222. Russ is in White Plains. Hello. Hey, Frank. You know, it was a missile strike for sure. It was naval maneuvers, and there'd be too many people involved. There were multiple ships. i tell you what it was. It was a Stinger missile from a, a speedboat, and that's why the CIA was involved, because they had to cover up foreign involvement. The U.S. Navy the, the ship Vincennes had shot down an Iranian Airbus eight years earlier, but as an act of war, we couldn't accept that this was a justified response by Iran. And just as the guy said it was a unique event, Flight 800, Flight 655, Iran, Iran Air 655, was another unique event. That's what happened. And Kallstrom covered up what happened to Waco. He's called in for cover-ups. The government lies to us constantly. Well, this was just the beginning. So, Russ, uh, certainly I follow the Iranian the situation with the Iranian uh, passenger airliner uh, pretty closely as well. Why do you think um, – is there any evidence that you would point to beyond the circumstantial that indicate that it was the Iranians that, uh, that did this? Well, I'd have to say it was inferential Frank, and I don't think the Iranians want to boast about an attack which was a, would be a causes belli, and we're not going to admit that this is an embarrassing defeat for the U.S., especially since it was justified. We murdered multiple hundreds of people on that Iranian Airbus, and we made up an excuse. Right, so, that it was so there's no evidence, uh, no evidence that, that, that you can point to specifically. Frank, the U.S. Navy, it was a unique event, just like the guy said. You have to see it in context. But the guy was limited. He also didn't see how Building 7, in the context of us blowing up our own buildings, we did it because of 1993. We wanted to be able to blow down the buildings in case they tried to topple them over. But people never take that extra step. All right. Thank you, Russell. Uh, I completely disagree with that. 
800-848-9222. Paul is in Connecticut. Hello, Paul. Hello, Frank. First-time caller. I've called and talked to Curtis a few times lately. Ah, well, uh, welcome aboard. Hopefully you like the uh, weekday program just as much as the weekend. I do. I liked you know, the Italian song the other night. My doctor and I told him about it. And Wonderful. Like that. He said his grandmother would play that music. Great. Wonderful. Well, with, What's on your mind, Paul? The, what can I do for you? Well, with the, you know, Flight 800, I'm in Connecticut, I didn't see it, but the logistically, it was very difficult. The plane was crashed in a thousand feet of water. And then, you know, I don't know, you know, I, I tried, I worked on a boat in the Bahamas it, and for us to just get a boat ready with a crew and anchor it out in a thousand feet of water to start doing some work, you know, the depths every, you get 14 pounds of pressure. You're breaking up a little bit there, Paul. Thank thank you. I appreciate that. And, um, okay, well, we're going to talk nonpartisan elections in just a minute. You know, when we do the AC report, usually we focus on casinos, gambling, nightlife, food, drinks, and maybe we'll squeeze in a lot of that. But there was a surprising amount of reaction to this interview that we did two weeks ago where a, a series of activists say that they want to convert to nonpartisan elections. And this is not really just an Atlantic City issue. It's an issue that any city in the country can be talking about. And so that interview got a lot of response. And the county chairman of the Atlantic County Democratic Party asked to come on to offer an alternative view. My view is all views should be heard, not just on this question, but every question. So we're going to hear from Michael Suleiman uh, with the AC Report straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report. Well, it blew up a chicken man in Philly last night. And it blew up his house, too. Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do. Now there's trouble busting in from out of state, and the DA can't get no relief. Gonna be a rumble on the promenade, and the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth. Everything dies, baby, that's a fact. Ah, yes, it is time for our weekly look at one of the most interesting municipalities in the entire world. But the question that's on the ballot uh, on this year, on Election Day, on November 8th, 
has a lot more to do with government than just inside the 48 blocks of Atlantic City. So why should this question that we're talking about matter to New Yorkers or people that live in Yonkers or Philadelphia or Richmond, Virginia or Chicago or Baltimore or Las Vegas? Well, the proponents of the question that's on the ballot this year in Atlantic City believe that a movement towards nonpartisan elections where there's no Democrat primary, no Republican primary, and then the winners of each of those go on to face each other in the general election. Instead, this system would have everybody's name on the ballot without a party. The people that are putting this on the ballot believe that this could be a model for a lot of other cities around the country. A lot of other cities already have nonpartisan elections, but this could be the shot in the arm necessary for other municipalities, particularly in the Northeast, to look at it. Here to uh, argue the contrary point of view is Michael Suleiman. He is the chairman of the Atlantic County Democratic Party. Uh, Michael, good morning. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Frank, good morning. How you doing, pal? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I know that you heard the interview that I did with Matthew James DeLuio Giacino, who's one of the people that had circulated petitions to get this question on the ballot. But for anybody that did not hear this discussion, this was his take on why nonpartisan elections matter for Atlantic City. Listen, at at the national level, when you're talking about large geographical locations and building coalitions, I can understand the argument for partisan politics. However, at the local level, the left-right paradigm really just falls apart. The the Democrat councilman that you mentioned that is endorsing this, um, I I ran against him last year. I was the Republican who ran against him. And the the, the interesting part was part of my platform as a Republican now was saying we have to do more and provide more funding to help with the homeless problem that we have. And the Democrat was bragging about how he had stopped a housing development (laughs) that was going to be built to housing. And so that is completely the 180 of what you would think if you were going into it with the ideology, thinking that, you know, oh, did that Democrat's going to, you know, be more liberal and support homeless people or whatever. And that's just not really the case. And you're, you're talking about a city. We're going to be lucky if we have 3,500 people come out and vote in November. In right. The city. Right. So what do you need partisan stuff for? Yeah. You know, and, and, and the sad part is it's made us lazy. Because it's our job as the citizens to research who these people are. Michael, uh, the argument, uh, the quote from Fiorello LaGuardia in the 30s, the mayor of New York, was there's no Democrat or Republican way to uh, clean a street. The argument is that the dissemination of municipal government services should really be non-ideological. Why is what that gentleman says there flawed? Why is this question something that voters should vote no on? Well, first, let's do a peek behind the curtain. Uh, I did get the email. As you know, I'm always on your email list, my friend, and it got your email that said, hey, uh, got this guest on here. Go check out this interview. And I, within three seconds or a fact, I said, oh, God, please, let me come on. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, here's a, here's a guy we had to sue last year for electioneering in Atlantic City, and I, I think we were successful in that, actually stopping his electioneering. So it gives you some context about the gentleman. Look, but he's not you know, the only one argue- for this, though. There are prominent Democrats and Republicans that are for this. There's Democrat members of the uh, Atlantic City City Council uh, and Republican, and the one Republican that's on the City Council. They're they're both for this. So it's not like this is this one guy versus the world. I mean, there are people on both sides of the issue. Well, 
I would say there's kind of there's there's two things. One, there's a couple of folks who happen to be political adversaries of the current mayor who are using this as a way to stick it to the mayor. You know, I mean, for all I hear that the mayor is unpopular, the guy keeps winning elections. So, you know, at a certain point, he's not unpopular. But really, this is just a ploy by the county Republican Party, as well as this crook, uh, Craig Calloway, you know, to really to take over city government because they can't beat, you know, Mayor Small at the polls. You know, they want to do this roundabout way to take over the government. And again, you know, where where are the calls for this? You know, frankly, in more Caucasian towns, on mainland towns, uh, in Republican towns, why is it a call for a heavily uh, Democratic area? Which, you know, forget the politics, forget DNR. A lot of your listeners, frankly, in New York, a city that I love, don't care. But, you know, Atlantic City is a big economic driver, not just for New Jersey, but for the entire Northeast. Mm -hmm. I mean, until North Jersey casinos come, or frankly, New York casinos come, rather, you know, you still got a lot of folks driving down the uh, parkway to come uh, spend some money here and uh, spend a night here. So, you know, one of the things we need in Atlantic City is stability in government. And you have some shenanigans like this that shows instability in government. It really deters investors and developers from investing in a great city like Atlantic City. You know, look at all the money that Caesars and Tropicana put in and other casino properties. A new uh, Bart Blatstein's doing a, a, a uh, water park, at showboat. We've got a lot of good investment in Atlantic City, and we don't want to jeopardize it by having a whole lot of shenanigans at the local level. I but, mean, we can't uh, even get a supermarket because of it. Oh, right? no. Well, I'm all for, you know, investment in Atlantic City as somebody that loves to go there, as you know, and hang out there and throw parties and, and do yeah. all the things I've that... Uh, parties. Yeah, now, and I hope you'll come back this year. But um, uh, why do you think, I guess the the part of what you just laid out that um, that lost me a little bit is... Why do you think that a, a transition to nonpartisan elections would cause developers to not want to invest in Atlantic City? Because we just had a, a proposed change of form of government two years ago, and it failed 80 to 20. So clearly this is something the voters do not want. Frankly, we tried to get this thing thrown off because it should not have been allowed on the ballot any, in the first place. But Hey, it is what it is, and it's allowed on the ballot. So clearly the, the voters don't want this. You know, I hear people all the time, didn't we just do this two years ago? So it just kind of makes the city look bad. It's always drama in the city, and that's the one thing I know so ain't me and others are trying to combat. You know, enough drama. Let's come and work together. I mean, you know, the gentleman that was on a couple, uh, a couple weeks ago, you know, he lost last year. The good thing is to, the right thing to do would be shake the guy's hand and say, hey, we lost. You won. Wish you best of luck. Now it's, well, you won, but we're going to try to screw you now and take over this take over this government with this roundabout form of government change. So, you know, again, it's it's I think that the, you know, voters benefit from a party system. They benefit and they save a whole lot of taxpayer money by having November elections to get rid of a primary and have May elections would cost the city easily 50 grand, mm. if not more, at a time where we're trying to lower taxes. But again, look, if the state senator and the Republican county chair and Craig Calloway will be on the side of raising taxes for Atlantic City residents, God bless the mayor. We're going to beat the hell out of him with it. So please, by all means, be in favor of higher taxes. All right. Well, so we're, I want to follow up on a few things that you just said. But please. Uh, in term, and we're talking with Michael Suleiman, he's the chairman of the Atlantic County Democratic Party in uh, New Jersey. But in terms of the primary process, itself. One of the 
criticisms of the primary process, not just in New Jersey, but in many states that have a closed primary system, is that the people that tend to go out and vote in primaries in both parties tend to be extreme. Uh, The hard left in the Democratic Party and the hard right in the Republican Party. And if you have a city like Atlantic City, which is primarily a one-party city, or New York for that matter, doesn't that lead to the hard left essentially choosing all the elected officials in a manner that may not be representative of the city as a whole? Uh, not necessarily, and frankly, in a county like Atlanta County, where we are, not only we're a purple county, but we've got a mix of suburban, urban, and rural. So we don't, we certainly are a big tent party, and I think we're proud of that. And look at, frankly, a city like Atlantic City, where you had nonpartisan government for decades until the late 90s. Ironically enough, Craig Calloway was the one who led the charge to make it a partisan government. So Craig Calloway, for people that don't know, is the uh, former uh, member of the Atlantic City City Council. He went to prison, I think, for voter fraud, and then he came out, and uh, he's still very much a Democratic uh, uh, power broker in Atlantic City. Well, he's a Republican. He's not a, he's, those are all Republicans now, but I, I get your point. Well, he was elected um, as a but, Democrat, but go ahead. Oh, sure, but now he's a Republican hack. But anyway, so in that time we had nonpartisan government, I think we the city elected like three candidates of color in that whole time. You know, frankly, one of the things that, that you benefit from a party system is that you kind of have more candidates, more representative of the communities in which they serve. I mean, the Atlantic City Democratic Committee um, that we work with that are kind of under the county party, you know, they're disproportionately uh, black and brown and South Asian, and you have more uh, diverse candidates uh, running for office. So I think that's good for a you know, city like Atlantic City, where it's only 15 percent Caucasian. I mean, you know, I do think there's a benefit for having that party apparatus in place. And look, it, frankly, it helps. It props up the Republican Party. Let's be honest. You had, uh, you know, you, you, you had that DNR balance in the city where, look, five years ago, we had a Republican mayor in Don Guardian. He's now the assemblyman. Right. So, but uh, something I tells do- me, Michael, you're not opposing this question because you think the existing party system helps the Republican Party. Right? I mean, think it gives them. I think it gives them a fighting chance. To be totally frank with you. I mean, you look at Don Guardian, you look at uh, Jim Ustry. We have had Republican mayors, just in the same way that New Jersey has had Republican, um, you know, Republican governors, and you, which is considered "quote unquote" a blue state. Um, look, I, I think you know you can't beat something with nothing, and right, there's yeah, really no, been I, no facts that that the, this new form of government would really be a benefit to residents. The only benefit would be they they can get rid of Marty Small, which okay, fine, then. You want to get rid of them, beat the guy at the election. I, I think the, the personally listening to your uh, analysis of it, the, the aspect of your argument that I think is the most powerful is the uh, conversion of the election to May, which, as you point out, would lead to greater expense for the taxpayer. And, you know, we've seen off-year ele- or off-November uh, elections in New York, and the turnout is uh, far smaller. But uh, So I, I think that makes some sense that you may not want to go to the added expense of having a May election, and even some callers called in and said, well, it doesn't make sense to um, you know, have an election that nobody's going to turn out in. But the, uh, the contrary view of that is that um, if it's just the municipal offices are, that are on the ballot, the people that will turn out for that May election are folks that aren't interested in the congressional races, aren't interested in the gubernatorial races. They're coming out because they have a vested interest in making determinations about city government. Why is that a, a faulty way of thinking? 
God almighty, I think uh, we have a hell of a lot more faith in voters than the other side does. Uh, I think voters are smart people, and I think they can walk, talk, and chew gum at the same time, and I think they can uh, analyze and vote for more than one office. And, uh, you know, we do have a history in Atlantic County, and frankly, New Jersey in general, of ticket splitting. So I think that shows you that they like one party for one office, another party for another office. So I think I think our voters can do the job adequately. It's not like New York where I got to love you, Frank. I, I, this fusion, this fusion voting thing is just so damn crazy and dumb. Uh, you know, you can have the same candidate on the ballot like four times for different parties. It just, uh, thank God we don't have, maybe uh Decina wants to go with that system, right? Where you got Eric Adams four times on the ballot. Well, but, I, know, again, I think if it ain't broken, don't fix uh, it. Again, and this has nothing to do with fusion voting. So I don't want to confuse I, the, no, I'm just, uh, no, 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 I'm sure, just sure. I, I, New York has, there's a lot of things about New York's election system that are in need of reform. So that's a, that's a whole, dumb. that's not a separate show. That's a whole mini series. There yeah, are, the um, there are a lot of cities that um, that use nonpartisan elections. Los Angeles uses it. Chicago uses it. Phoenix, San Antonio, Dallas, San Jose, Detroit, San Francisco, Jacksonville, Florida. So it's not as if the, the, this proposal in Atlantic City is going to remake the wheel. I mean, there are a lot of cities that do this. Is it really that revolutionary if you're taking something that's used in maybe almost half of the hundred largest municipalities in the country and bringing it to Atlantic City? Well, I just think it's ironic that the folks who are pushing this in a minority-majority, heavily Democratic city are not pushing this in a nearby town like Egg Harbor Township, which is predominantly Caucasian and Republican. So you do see that it's the small p politics at play. And frankly, for those other big towns, I mean, if a city like Atlantic City could spend fifty or a hundred grand with uh, unnecessary nonpartisan elections, I shudder to think how much uh, LA could save in taxpayer dollars, where gas is seven dollars a gallon, if they did switch to elections in November. So I think those uh, bigger towns, I think maybe have it wrong, and I think Atlantic City has it right. I mean, uh, you know, we're all trying to cut back and fight inflation, but government has to do its job first and cut back its expenses. We're and, talking with Michael Suleiman. Uh, He's the chairman of the Atlantic County Democratic Party. Uh, so uh, at first, you said the the current system would benefit the uh, the current system. Benefit benefits the Republican Party in Atlantic County and Atlantic City and allows them to remain a sort of a player. And and now you're kind of saying what they're doing on the other side is uh, trying to not do this in Republican areas because they don't want to upset the apple cart. So it does sound like there's a little bit you're trying to have it both ways uh, rhetorically, but that, that's OK. Um, Michael, well, but you know what the issue here, though, Frank, is let's look, here's let's break the fourth wall here. So the state senator who just got elected last year, a guy named Vince Palestina, nice enough guy, no issues with him personally, he's up for election next year. So the calculus is, hey, if we can take away the uh, the turnout from a November election in Atlantic City and move it to May, that'll help me politically because less Democrats will come out, which means I'll have a better chance of winning. That's the subtext here. Uh, and, uh, you know, now Palestina has denied it, but obviously he's county chair and Callaway, who works for him, I've been pushing it, so he's kind of having his cake and eating it, too. So that's the subtext, I think, for your listeners. This is just to help the Republicans next year. So this is clearly clearly voter suppression and trying to depress Democratic turnout because, look, you you know, you get a nonpartisan election in May, turnout's 15 percent, and turnout in November for, let's say, state Senate is a lot lower versus combining the elections, keeping the system we have. It ain't broke, don't fix it. And, you know, I mean, again, I think voters can – 
distinguish one race from another, and they're they're pretty darn smart. Uh, there are a lot of folks that say you are in some ways the least objective person on this question because you're a party leader, and there is a sure. thinking that this will diminish the influence and the power of party leaders. Uh, is there anything to be said for that? Maybe some of the, some folks will say that part of the reason you're so opposed to this is because you don't want to diminish your own influence in picking elected officials in your county's most democratic city. So I don't I don't think I, I pick elected officials. I wish I had that type of power, but uh, I appreciate that sentiment. Look, I'm a party guy. There's no doubt about it. So am I objective here? No. But, uh, you know, talking to look, I'm in Atlanta. Like, I love Atlantic City. I'm in Atlantic City a lot. I talk to a lot of different communities, uh, all the different neighborhoods, black communities, brown communities, Hispanic communities, South Asian, Caucasian. I talk to everybody. And, you know, you, you get your finger on the pulse. You know, you go to a restaurant and ask the uh, owner how they're doing. You go to a laundromat and ask the guy behind the counter how he's doing. So you talk to these guys and gals, and you figure out what makes them tick, and they don't want this. I talk to them. They say, look, Mike, this is stupid. Why are we wasting this? Let's get the potholes fixed. And they're right. They, they get the potholes fixed, uh, get more police on the streets, and uh, get the streetlights working. I think that's what people of Atlantic City care about. But, yeah, hell yeah, I'm a party guy, and I'm proud to be a party guy. And the Democratic Party is diverse and strong, and we're doing a good job. But – you know, at the end of the day, uh, there can be uh, non-political arguments to, uh, against something like this, and I think uh, we've got the arguments on our side. You are certainly a, a frequent visitor to Atlantic City, but uh, I don't think you actually currently reside in Atlantic City, unless I'm incorrect, Michael. Is that right? I do not, know. Okay, so there are members, Democratic elected officials, including members of the Atlantic City City Council that are for this. Uh, the City Council President, uh, George Tibbet, I believe, I think uh, City Council Member Bruce Weeks is also for this. So if this is a, sort of this um, this surreptitious plot to help Republicans running for election next year, why would Democratic current sitting elected officials within Atlantic City be for it? Uh, because it's not about parties. Look. Weeks and Dunstan and George Tibbet, who I still like, they hate the mayor. That's like it's not the most uh, exciting answer. But really, they just hate the mayor and anything they can do to screw the mayor. And this is viewed as screwing the mayor because they can get rid of them more easily, presumably, with the change of government. So that's it. That's literally the only reason. They don't like the mayor. The mayor doesn't like them, apparently. So. That's why they're they're for it. You've said a few times in the last few minutes that um, th- that the current system has led to a more diverse slate of candidates and a more diverse slate of elected officials. Could a case be made that the increase in diversity of candidates and elected officials is also a reflection of the growing diversity of Atlantic City itself? The city has become more diverse over the last 20 years. Could that be part of the reason that there are more uh, candidates of color being elected? So the city is becoming more diverse, and you're seeing this kind of nationwide trend um, where the only two groups kind of grow. The well, Hispanic population has kind of seen a huge explosion of growth. Um, and in Atlantic City, I think it's kind of 33% black, 30% Hispanic, and I think South Asian populations creeping up there, 8 9%, 10%, somewhere in there. So you are seeing the, the city get more diverse and the white population going down. However, I would argue, if you look at facts, are the disproportional diversity of our city committee, for example, has 
been outpacing or been ahead of the overall population change in the city. For example, a couple of years ago, thanks to the diversity of our party, we were able to get and get candidates installed, the two uh, first South Asian candidates for city council. So we had two South Asians, which is a big deal. Lansing's got a big uh, Indian and Pakistani and uh, Bangladesh uh, community, a very bustling community. But you know, at the time, it was probably the, the population was probably at most 5% in the city. But our city committee, especially in those wards, was probably an overwhelming majority of South Asians. So we were able to get those folks installed. Now we're at a point on the last census where it's 9 or 10% where that community is now increased. So it allowed us to be ahead of the curve. Like, hey, we know the direction the city's going. We have two South Asian candidates of color. Now we have uh, African-American and South Asian folks on council. We don't have – we did have someone of Hispanic descent. We don't have that now. It's my hope we can get a Hispanic back on city council. But, no, the, if you look at if you look at the demographics of Atlantic City and look at our city Democratic committee, the city Democratic committee is, is certainly more diverse and more um, uh, divergent than the city uh, population as a whole. Uh, talking with Michael Suleiman, uh, chairman of the Atlantic County Democratic Party, the argument for diversity, I think, you know, it definitely holds water with a lot of people. But we always tend to talk about diversity in racial, ethnic, and gender terms. Is there also an argument to be made when considering an electoral system of the need for political diversity? Would Atlantic City residents, would Atlantic County residents, would New Jersey residents, would residents in other cities benefit if there was not just essentially one-party control of a municipality? Well, I think you know. Again, voters are smart. I think they can. They they have the ability to to you know. I I don't know. I just think the other side looks at voters as sheep, and they don't know what the hell they're doing. They just blindly vote. And I, as someone who knocks on a whole lot of doors and asking for votes, I just I don't agree with that assessment. I think vote and and the guy you had a couple weeks ago should he just ran he ran for office last year got his butt whipped. So but the guy that beat that him is though. for this though. The guy that beat him is for the same change. Again, that he's and, for. and 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 and. Look, I, I don't want to embarrass my friend George about the private conversation he and I had, but you know he was very much against this for a while, and then he and the mayor had a fight, and now he's for it all of a sudden. So small p politics. All but, right, um, uh, I'm almost out of time, Michael. Two questions I got to ask you. You've um, you've said a couple times that the voters are smart. You've talked a couple times about all the elections that Marty Small has been winning, and he certainly had more than his fair share of wins. If he's doing such a great job, and if the voters are smart. Why can't Marty Small simply win in a nonpartisan election? I'm not saying he couldn't. I mean, frankly, when you go from turnout of, let's say, 45 or 50 percent to turnout of 10 or 15 percent, where there's you know, a greater likelihood of ballot shenanigans by Callaway and ballot harvesting that even President Trump has called out, uh, I think there's a greater chance of taking anybody out, quite frankly. When it's a low turnout, anything can happen. It, it's, uh, it's unusual to... Uh... To hear a big county Democratic chairman calling out bar- ballot harvesting, uh, I'll be seeing you and Donald Trump campaigning against that together in the coming weeks, I'm yeah, sure. Exactly. Um, make headlines. Finally, Michael, and this might be the most controversial question I ask you, gun to your head. You have to pick your absolute favorite restaurant in Atlantic City. What is it? Chef Ola. Chef and Ola. I hesitated because either that or Cafe 2825 because I was just there last week. But Chef Ola probably number one. Michael, I will see you on New Year's Eve, Eve, if not before. Thank you for taking the time. Looking forward to it, my friend. Thank you, sir. Appreciate Thank you. It. Michael Suleiman. If you want to comment, you can do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 
other side at midnight with Frank Morano. by the Kenneths, uh, no, have nothing to do, no relation with our telephone talent coordinator, Kenneth, uh, the uh, aspiring model. But um, I found this song, you know, I was doing some homework on the Internet, and I, found, I, I looked for the best songs you've never heard of. And I said, let me listen to some of these songs and see if they are actually any good. And sure enough, this was one of the ones on, on the list of, uh, from wherever I found it. And I, I did agree with this. I had never heard this song, and uh, it is one of the best songs that I have never heard. 800-848-9222. Yesterday was a banner day in the Morano household because uh, my son, young Carmine Morano, had a number of firsts yesterday. I'm only going to mention one for fear that, uh, you know, I don't want to get in trouble with either his mother or the authorities. Yesterday, my son ate cat food for the first time. He was crawling around, and, and he made his way over. This is while I was sleeping, while I was doing my afternoon sleeping session, and his mother was probably working, and uh, she put him down so he could do some crawling in a secure area. The cats were were eating in their cat food area. He crawls over to the cat food, and I guess Rachel had her back turned to him for 40 seconds, and he, he helps himself to a giant heaping handful of cat food. And wouldn't you know it, the kid liked it. My, my wife finally sees that he's eating this cat food, and then she's rushing to rescue him from it. She's waiting to see him spit it out. He ate it and then was reaching for more. So the, this young man has a fondness for cat food. So now that's one more thing we have to keep him away from. I mean, I guess it's not going to do him any harm. We give it to the cats, you know. So, all right. Hey, uh, coming up, are you suffering from a midlife crisis? Well, take a number. A lot of folks are. We'll get into that and a whole lot more. Until next hour, your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thanks for tuning in. Evidently, the midlife crisis is real. Axios 
reporting. Uh, based on new research, Erica Pandy writing, based on this research, that people in their 40s and 50s in rich countries are prone to a rise in suicidal thoughts, job stress, depression, and alcohol dependence, according to a new paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research. Now, I'm not trying to belittle these findings because I think this is actually very serious. And I, that's one of the reasons I'm choosing to talk about it. But I, I I am struck by that the way that phrase is written. People in their 40s and 50s in rich countries are prone to a rise in everything I just listed. You know what might cure some of these 40 people in their 40s and 50s in rich countries? Send them to a poor country for a week or a, or a month or a year and see how well they fare and then bring them back to the United States or one of the other rich countries surveyed and see if they're still feeling down in the dumps and suicidal and the need to drink because of a midlife crisis. I mean, I again, I don't want to sound like I'm insensitive because this is a real problem. And part of the reason I want to talk about it is because it is a real problem. But... There is a part of this that just reeks to me of crybabyism. I want to take a 48-year-old um, advertising executive that is stressed out because he may not be able to pay his country club dues and send him to live in Haiti for a month. I want to take a uh, a a... I don't know, a Wall Street guy that's upset about the $70,000 he's needing to pay for his child's tuition at college with room and board and send him to live in Syria or Malawi or Yemen or Rwanda for a month. And then I have a feeling that will cure whatever this midlife crisis is. So um, you know what the magic number is for midlife crises? Age 45. Age 45, when people reach their maximum level, according to the study, of work stress, age 45, researchers studied, this is a very reputable study. They, they, this is not, you know, 100 people filling out an online study. Researchers studied 500,000 people from wealthy nations around the world and discovered a series of what they call hill curves, when they look when they're looking at mental health they used to be called bell curves now they're called hill curves major indicators of mental duress which is depression thoughts of suicide stress headaches and alcohol use peaked in midlife ready for this regardless of income regardless of nationality regardless of gender or whether or not people had kids. You know, that did surprise me. When I think of the idea of a midlife crisis, I think of uh, people that are male, upper middle class, with children, and white. But according to this research, that is a fallacy. It affects people of all incomes, all nationalities, and all genders. The study authors noted that midlife crises aren't discussed enough. So now we're doing our part. We're discussing it. Do you buy this? 
Why do you think we are seeing people around age 45 deal with these midlife crises and deal with the stress of uh, mental duress, depression, suicide, headaches, alcohol use? 800-848-9222. Also, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to us right now that might be dealing with some of these. And I'm curious if you have any good strategies for helping them deal. 800-848-9222. One of the people that I was really glad to have on the program recently was Jeffrey Gurian. Because we talked a little bit about this. The importance of staying positive. The importance of tapping into happiness. You know, the radio talk show host, Dennis Prager, one hour a week on his show, he does something called the Happiness Hour. And I think that's great because... I do think sometimes people have a tough time staying positive. They get down in the dumps because their manager is mean to them or because uh, their their professional life isn't turning out the way they want and their um, spouse is uh, not treating them kindly and their children don't seem to want to share their life to them. There's a lot of things that can stress an average person out. And I think it's important, and that's one of the reasons I focused on this with Jeffrey Gurry, and I think it's important to develop strategies to stay positive and not let this stuff lead to depression, an increase in alcohol use, increase in all sorts of other things. 800-848-9222. There is evidence, according to Fortune, there is evidence that the midlife crisis, this was interesting and I didn't anticipate this, but it makes sense. There's evidence that the midlife crisis may be moving to earlier in life due to the pandemic. Younger workers are reporting mounting burnout. They're resigning and quiet quitting. We've talked about that in droves. And that is potentially pointing to a rise in mental duress and work stress hitting us all a bit sooner. So this research study, like many others, reinforces the critical act of Checking in with friends, family, colleagues, and neighbors. Uh, We know how much Matt Blaze enjoys checking in with his neighbors. But uh, this does show that it is important. You never know how someone is is really doing until you ask. You know who said that in his speech when he got inducted into the Hall of Fame? The Undertaker. The Undertaker said you really can't um, avoid the importance of asking people how they are. Which makes me feel bad because a lot of times when I walk in, I I just I want to try to do whatever I can to get down to work right away. And I actually will try to avoid talking with anyone uh, so that I don't have to get bogged down into a conversation. And I feel a little guilty about that. But at the same time, I also do have a lot of work to do. And I know a four and a half minute conversation with you about the status of the coffee machine is not going to fast track my getting work done. But on the other hand, I still, you know, I should, I guess, what's four and a half minutes, right? Maybe it makes makes sense to spend that four and a half minutes. All right. 800-848-9222. Speaking of happiness, I want to wish a happy birthday to Paul Simon. Singer Paul Simon is 81 years old today. And a rock and, a rock and Roll Hall of Famer Paul Simon Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones is 80 years old today, and musician Robert Lamb, the founding member, a founding member of the group Chicago, is 78 today. 
And uh, Pro Football Hall of Famer Jerry Rice is 60 today. See, isn't that interesting? I I am perpetually amazed whenever I go through the birthdays at seeing how many people who have similar things that they're famous for all have their birthday today. And yet, two people that are named for, that are famous for football, it's their birthday today. And two people that are famous for music, it's their birthday today. You know who else's birthday it is today? Uh, your favorite congresswoman, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, 33 years old, only two years away from being eligible to uh, run for president. So uh, happy birthday to all of them. Speaking of football, uh, maybe we'll go through my football picks before we get to Brian Kilmeade. Or maybe I should make him make a couple of these picks. Well, whatever. I'll try. I didn't do well in the pool the le- yesterday, but... For those of you that care about my picks, maybe I'll share them with you. Also, happy birthday to former WABC program director Lori Cantillo and uh, to my friend Dennis's daughter Dawn. Happy birthday to her. 800-848-9222. We have a first-timer. Bernard in Santa Barbara. Hello. Hey, how you doing, Frank? I'm doing well. Thanks for calling in, Bernard. Well, I wanted to let you know AOC is not my favorite person. Oh, you're kidding. No, it's it's the truth. Okay. Um, all right. Now, what I wanted to say about this thing with people getting midlife depression and all the other alcoholisms and everything else. Okay. We don't want to put animals in cages and zoos, right? Right. Well, why I mean, would we want to put... I mean, I, why I, I, would we want to put people in cubicles and offices? Okay, it may not take one decade, may not take two decades, but after three decades, you're going to be a little wackadoodle. Okay, now the the thing I want to say in addition to all that is that those problems, the alcoholism and all the other stuff you talked about, are rich people's problems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're luxury problems just like with all these other problems we have, okay? You know, we're, we have got it so good and we're so wealthy that we've got time to worry about which bathroom we're going to use. Well, you're right. That's what I said. I said, uh, you know, if you really want to see uh, somebody uh, somebody's attitude straighten up in a hurry, send them to live in South Sudan for a year, and then you'll see how uh, how happy they are to uh, deal with all the problems in uh, in Santa Barbara or in Staten Island. Exactly, exactly. You know, uh, it's unbelievable. You think it's unbelievable some of these other places, of course. I'm not going to sign up to come to New York and find out exactly what that's all about. But I want to tell you something. You want to talk about Gilligan's Island in Santa Barbara? People are completely out of touch. Well, I believe it. I believe it, Bernard. Oh, yeah. Disgusting. Bernard, thank you very much. 800-848-9222. Seven open lines if you want to comment. That's 800-848-9222. Henry is in Manhattan. Hello, Henry. Hi, good evening. Uh, about what you're talking about, I thought your in- introduction of the idea of sending people, I don't know about using the word sending, but having people spend a week or two weeks in a, a very poor country to uh, appreciate the uh, uh, 
that their problems in this very rich country are are self-inflicted, so to speak, uh, was a very good one and maybe ought to be uh, considered by the uh, uh, therapy community. You know, uh, I, I think that, is, I, I, in all honesty, I think that actually is a good idea uh, because I think one of the fundamental problems, Henry, uh, whether it has to do with happiness, whether it has to do with uh, cultural issues, whether it has to do with parenting, sports, uh, or politics, especially media, one of the fundamental problems, and thank you for the call, that we have in society is groupthink. And the fact that we surround ourselves, and it's gotten so much worse with social media, we surround ourselves with people in our little bubble. Not necessarily people that think like us, but people from our perspective. And I think it really is a healthy thing to get out of your comfort zone a little bit. Do something you're not comfortable with. If you're a city guy, you know, spend some time in the country, right? Uh, or whatever the case may be, do something get, get out of the uh get out of your routine and see things from another another pro- perspective. There is um you know, there's there was a very good mini series. It was based on a book called uh, The Plot Against America. And there was a book by the same name uh, written by Philip Roth. I never read the book. But basically, the the premise of this miniseries and book is that Charles Lindbergh becomes president of the United States in, I guess, uh, the late 30s or early 40s, either 1936 or 1940. And he... Um, delays the United States getting into World War II essentially because he's a a Nazi sympathizer. And one of the, I don't want to get into the whole show. I think I talked about the show at the time that it was on. But one of the things that they do is they place urban Jewish young boys in America in rural communities. It temporarily places, it's like an exchange program kind of a thing. And it temporarily places Jewish boys into rural families to, quote, make them more American. Now, the motivation behind it on the show was, you know, purely anti-Semitic. The idea that Jews were not were somehow un-American and that they needed to be more Americanized. But it really did, and obviously I realize we're talking fiction versus real life, it really did cause these urban city dwellers, these young city dwellers, to see life from a different perspective, to develop new friends, to develop rural friends, to develop country friends, to develop friends that knew how to cut down a tree. And I really do think there's some value to this. I'm not suggesting that we send all the Jewish boys to rural households. Let me be very, very clear before you start writing your letters to station management. But I do think it's something voluntarily that we should all try to do. Again, I, I hate to have all my knowledge of society and culture come from fictional television shows, but there was a fascinating series of episodes on Star Trek The Next Generation where the Klingon Empire and the Federation embarked on sort of an, an officer exchange program where the first officer of some Federation ships, Commander Riker, the first officer of the Enterprise, went to go and be the first officer on a Klingon ship, I think on a Klingon bird of prey. 
And it did teach him new perspectives, not only about dealing with the Klingons, which is important, but new perspectives on leadership. Same with um, with the Klingon guy that came to be the acting first officer at the M- at the, at the uh, Enterprise. It was really very interesting. You know who used to do this? Mike Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg used to take people that were deputy commissioners at one agency and just to kind of shuffle the deck a little bit, throw them at another agency. And uh, he found that it worked well in the private sector as well. Additionally, um, Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower, if you read about his leadership both in the military and as president, and I'm, I'm assuming this was probably true of his time as uh, a university president as well. He was really into this, into taking people in different leadership roles and kind of mixing and matching and see what developed. Uh, Lori Cantillo, whose birthday it is today, um, she used to do this in radio. She'd take somebody that was producing the morning show or the phone screener for the morning show and say, well, now this week you're producing the evening show. And it, you develop new strategies and you develop um, a new perspective on your own duties. And I think that is um, – I don't want to overstate this as being the single cure to suffering from a midlife crisis because, heaven forbid, you go transfer to South Sudan for six months and you end up killed in some sort of an ethnic cleansing campaign. All of a sudden, this is not going to look like such a good idea. But I think there's something to what Henry is saying. 800-848-9222. If you have suffered from a midlife crisis, what was your experience? What do you think is driving all these midlife crises? What's a way out of this so people can avoid a midlife crisis? I was looking online, researching the motion pictures that do the best job depicting a midlife crisis. And there are a bunch. One was uh, American Beauty which I think that was certainly that portrayal of of Lester Burnham by uh, Kevin Spacey, who's now in some trouble. Uh, that was a great depiction of a midlife crisis. Uh, the film This Is 40, I think, does a good job. Crazy Stupid Love with um, Steve Carell, I think that does a great job. And even City Slickers, I think, does a good job. But... Um, the, and you know what I think does a great job? It's been a few years since I've seen this, but this film is worth seeing just for the soundtrack is Wonder Boys. Wonder Boys with Michael Douglas. That's a phenomenal film where one of the main characters is dealing with a midlife crisis. There's a reason so many cinematic portrayals resonate with people on this because, um, you know, a lot of people are going through this. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Ron Kunkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank, uh, how you doing tonight? I'm well, thanks. I'm 47, and it started about a year ago. Um, you know, my kids are getting bigger. I work seven days a week. I do lawns on the side, and my age, I'm getting worried. Am I going to still be able in a couple of years to be doing what I'm doing overnight, seven days a week? Uh, you know, I see uh, my kids, like I said, getting bigger. And I always wanted to own my own repair shop, and that's never going to fruition with everything going on in the world, everything so expensive. And you start thinking about all this stuff, and I I like to fish. So I, I'll go fishing, like, you know, once or twice a month to clear my mind. And, you know, but it's rough because 
with inflation and everything going on right now, you, you look to the future and you're getting older, and you'll see when your son gets older, you start, your mind starts playing games with you that, you know, like, you know, and it, it's rough. It really is. And you're losing both my parents. Oh, sure. They, you feel alone. You don't have, you know, all I have is my sister, really, family-wise, because I'm Italian, and we had, my dad was a lot of fights with a lot of our family members. So we don't really talk too much. And it, it really, really does play havoc with the mind. Have a great night, Frank. Thank, hey, Joe, don't, go, don't leave yet. Don't leave yet. Joe, for people that are going through a similar thing to what you're going through or what you recently went through, do you have any strategies that you can offer them in terms of ways that they can cope and do a good job coping with this? Well, if you have children, I volunteer with my son and his soccer. I keep myself busy. I uh, try to bond more with my daughter, which I've always been close, but she's 15 now, so she's all about a boyfriend. So, you know, I'm losing that battle a little bit. A boyfriend comes first. But, um, you know, you got to keep busy, and yet you can't let um, suicidal thoughts or stuff like that get. You can't. You get, if you sure. start feeling that way, you need to go to a doctor. Oh, yeah. You well, I mean? absolutely, uh, Joe. But, you know, sometimes maybe there are strategies that you can use that will improve your mood without having to visit a doctor. But I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. By the way, I want to thank my friend Al Gatulo. He pointed out, and I did not know this, that today is also Sammy Hagar's birthday, 75 years old. Isn't that interesting? Again, same thing. Same thing. Another star musician having their birthday today. This, more than anything, has made me a believer in astrology. It really has. You see all these people with common characteristics with the same birthdays. It really is so interesting to me. 800-848-9222. Speaking of birthdays, uh, we're going to talk to Brian Kilmeade in just a few minutes. I don't think it's his birthday, but we'll find out. Uh, Today is the birthday of the U.S. Navy. So uh, happy birthday to all the Navy veterans out there, especially... Our president, Chad Lopez, a proud uh, Navy veteran. He was a Navy diver, uh, did a great job in the Navy. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to John in Reno. John, hello. Hey, Frankie. How are you? John, what station are you listening to us out there on? I listen to you on the website. Oh, uh, okay. Well, good. We have a a great uh, Reno station out there. You got to check us out out there. All right. What I wanted to talk to you about was um, you talk about sending people to Sudan to get a, pre- get a better appreciation for what they have. Uh, there's a charity in San Francisco called the Faithful Fools. And what the Faithful Fools do is they hold street retreats where they bring in wealthy suburbanites into the ghetto, the Tenderloin of San Francisco, and they let them be homeless for a weekend or a week. And it gives them an opportunity to see what it's like to be homeless. Well, give, me, give me the name of it again. That sounds interesting, and I don't know that I was up on that. The Faithful Fools. The Faithful Fools. Very interesting, John. John, do me a favor. Check us out on 103.3 FM. Let us know how we sound on there, okay? 103.3, I will. All right, thank you very much. Let me say a quick hello to uh, Joey in Huntington. Hello, Joey. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Thank you for taking my call. I was just wondering... Um, you know, um, in regards to the last couple of callers, um, the Ark of Triumph is, is um, 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 in, in Ethiopia, and maybe we should do some more um, because we need to com- communicate with um, the higher pre- um, uh, 
I don't want to say, uh, you know, any, any religious stuff, but, um, you know, that's, we have a lot of mixed religions here. But uh, we need to, uh, um, like Sudan, we need to, like, delve and, and um, get out of these wars that we have in our political situations. I'm not going to go into that, but, um, you know, we, we need to just do something to persevere our life here, uh, you know, sustenance in life. And thank you so much, sir. Thanks, Joey. Uh, very quickly, Charlie's in Florida. Hello, Charlie. Very quickly. That's big news. I got 10 seconds. Um, well, I will give you 30. I'll get right to it. I proved without a shadow of a doubt. I came down to Florida in May. And the first month, I was great. For a couple, The last three months, I was so depressed, I never left the house. And you know what turned it around? The hurricane. I went out, and I started. I saw people in need, <laughs> and I volunteered everywhere I could. And I was purposely being depressed because I didn't know anybody. I didn't want to know anybody. People got to get away from TV, get away from their phones, recharge, read a book, don't watch the news. I turned a six-year-old kid on to Bugs Bunny today, and he loved it. Instead of watching that garbage that his mother's been letting him watch to keep him quiet. He loved Bugs Bunny. What was the, I'm just, first of all, that's great that you're doing that, and I'm glad you made out okay with the hurricane. What was the garbage that his mother was making him watch? Not making it, but she let him sit there and be mesmerized by YouTube, these gamers, these grown men in their 20s and 30s talking incessantly about gaming and, oh, he just hit the wall. Oh, oh he, I'm like, really? That's your job? That's your life? <laughs> talking about this nonsense? I mean, they sounded like skater boys. I mean, I got nothing against skater boys, but it was just incessant nonsense. It was almost... Like and the kid was he wouldn't eat. She had to turn the TV off to get him to eat. Hey Charlie, thank you. While you're turning uh, young people on to programming, turn some of them on to our podcast as well. Charlie, thanks for the call. I appreciate your perspective. I'm glad you're doing well. Brian Kilmeade is going to join me in just a minute, but first we're going to try and give away a thousand dollars. Seventh caller right now to eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. We're going to give you a chance to answer ten trivia questions in sixty seconds. That's one eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Simon, a terrific song on his birthday. Still crazy after all these years. I can't tell you how many times I um, think that I'm still crazy for still um, being in the radio business after so many years and how often this song uh, plays in my head. We're going to talk with Brian Kilmeade in just a moment. But first, under the old rules, not the Kilmeade proposed rules, 
we have our latest edition of The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morales. Ah, uh, yes. Let's say hello to Robert in Manhattan. Now, Robert, if I remember correctly, you're something of a, a triviologist or something, aren't you? No. Oh, you're not. Okay. All right. Well, we'll we'll uh, we'll see how well you do here. You know the game, though. You're familiar with it. Yeah. Yes. Okay. You ready to go? Yes. Okay, yeah, I could tell. I could sense the enthusiasm. All right, what grade comes after first grade? Second. How many legs does a spider have? Eight. What British passenger liner crashed into an iceberg in 1912? Titanic. What rapper was once married to Kim Kardashian and was suspended from Twitter this week? Could you repeat that? What rapper who was once married to Kim Kardashian was also suspended from Twitter this week? I'll take a guess. Jay-Z. No, I'm sorry. It's Kanye West. Kanye West. Um, uh, So I'm sorry you didn't win there, Robert. I'm sure if you were to ask Kanye, it's because... Jews control the media or something along those lines. Uh, but uh, I figured you would get that because he's been in the news quite a bit. Hang on, Robert. Give Kenneth your information and we will uh, we will send you a prize of some sort. Give him one of Kanye's albums, one of the lesser controversial ones. Uh, it is always a treat to be able to join with uh, Brian Kilmeade each and every Thursday. Uh, one of the biggest stars on television, radio, and in print. Kind enough to make some time for us each and every Thursday morning. He's a co-anchor of Fox and Friends and a nationally syndicated radio talk show host, in addition to being a New York Times bestselling author. Brian, it's great to talk with you again. But the best news is I'm on WABC from uh-huh. 10 to noon. Exactly. I mean, that's the headline. Exactly. You know, it's funny. I was in Atlantic City for uh, Harry Hurley's dinner last uh, last Friday. You were all anybody's talking about because apparently you've agreed to be the uh, the honoree at that dinner again next year. Yes, uh, we're a year ahead of time. Harry Hurley's the best, uh, and I'm sure I've never seen a radio host dominate a market like he dominates Atlantic City. Am well, I correct? I I, uh, I think we have some good folks in New York as well. But uh, but yes, you're right. Harry is Harry's a legend. So I'm looking forward to seeing seeing you there uh, next year. Uh, speaking of New York radio personalities, I saw you briefly at uh, Bernard McGurk's wake out on uh, Long Island the other day, and uh, obviously uh, we weren't able to talk about it last uh, last week because he had just passed yeah. away a few hours before. I'm wondering if you could say a word or two about what Bernie was like as a person, as a comment or as a media professional? I mean, uh, great. Uh, by the way, I met Mike Breen for the first time. I did, I did not know how far they went back. I just know they were on the air together with Imus. And I did not know that they were both in just the front office, WFAN. Just one, one was an intern, one was marketing, and one ends up being this great radio host. And the other one ends up being the number one NBA voice uh, right now in the country. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just think he was self-effacing, extremely smart. Um, I, I think that he also understood uh, humor better than anybody else in the business of it. Uh, the aggression he took towards Imus in a comedic way, knowing that Imus did rule that show with an iron fist and brought reality in front of the microphone, but yet understood what made the show work. And then when he became his own frontline player with Sid, I thought he was great. I mean, we saw him 
with O'Reilly every week. And it's not easy to be funny with O'Reilly every week. And he was with Gutfeld. And then you saw him at an outnumbered. You saw him in the halls. I remember when he was free, sometimes he would leave. I must just watch Fox and Friends. I'd see him sometimes just with the, with the audience, just kind of watch him when we were doing stuff outside. And just a really nice, sincere guy. And unbelievably bright. Uh, that's for sure. And uh, you said it. It's not easy to be. It's not always easy to show off either your intellect or your sense of humor with some of the folks that uh, that he worked with on TV and radio over the years. Uh, Imus and uh, O'Reilly among them, as uh, as Chris Cuomo found out trying to be funny with O'Reilly last night. It didn't work out as well for what him. What happened? Uh, it just it was kind of a lot of jokes falling flat, as you can imagine. It you mean not, on his new show? Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, I'll, I'll, you didn't miss anything if you didn't if you didn't see it. You didn't miss anything. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna play <laughs> some highlights uh, maybe tomorrow. Hey, um, another show that got a lot of buzz this week, though, uh, on another network. Sorry to mention it is uh, Jake Tapper, who interviewed President Biden. And the big takeaway in that interview was President Biden's threatening of Saudi Arabia. Here's so a little dumb. bit of uh, what President Biden said. We should. And I am uh, in the process when the, when the uh, uh, this House and Senate gets back, they're going to have to. Uh, there's going to be some consequences for what they've done with Russia. What kind of consequences? Menendez says suspend all arms sales. Is that something you'd consider? I'm not going to get into what I'd consider and what I have in mind, but there will be there will be consequences. OPEC, uh, which Saudi Arabia is obviously a big part of, they say they're going to cut energy production. This is the last thing that President Biden needs right now when he'd love to see gas prices go lower. Uh, How do you see this whole uh, strategy playing out from both an economic perspective and a political one? Well, number one, uh, can anyone in this administration think about around the corner, think two moves ahead? When you're running sometimes to get elected, I remember seeing this documentary on JFK, and he said one of the first things he did after he got elected is he flew to Florida to basically apologize for Eisenhower because he had to talk about we have to turn the page. It's time to turn the page with new leaders. I'm the 42-year-old guy that's got to do it. And he was putting down Eisenhower in doing so. He won. Right. So the first thing he did, he said, listen, that's what I had to do to win. So that and evidently apologies were made and accepted. So when you're running for office, sometimes you say stuff like I'm going to to differ myself from my opponent by I'm going to make them a pariah in the Middle East. But the guy who was former chairman in foreign relations knows Mm. it's a bad neighborhood in the neighborhood. You have two choices, Saudi Arabia or Iran. You can't have both. And you can't alienate both and be in the best interest of the United States of America. So obviously Iran's a bad player. They've killed 183 of their own people who just want to protest for human rights. They just murdered a 21-year-old who didn't have her hijab or hijab on right. Uh, This is a terrible country that will upend the Middle East if they're able to get this uh, nuclear deal back in place. So if you alienate Saudi Arabia, that means you're affiliating America with Iran. Nobody in America thinks we should be affiliated with Iran. Maybe some some terrorists that snuck on the southern border that are nesting, waiting to attack one day. So he goes ahead, calls him a pariah nation, says he's going to get rid of oil and gas, and then decides I've got to go over there, i got to get production up or I'm going to get killed in the midterms. I'll do it in the summer. He goes over there, fist bumps with the guy. The guy, to me, I think the story's going to be written that that prince met him on the curb and nobody knew it. And Biden had no choice but to acknowledge him, so therefore looking like a total hypocrite. And there's no doubt about it, the Saudis are saying, in your face, 
It's not so much pro-Russia as it's anti-Democratic Party who want to undo the Abraham Accords, not see the progress that was about to be made, take credit for what just happened between Lebanon and Israel. He took credit for overfights allowed to Saudi Arabia. That was done with Jared Kushner and Donald Trump. So when you do this, while cutting back production, you've lost all your leverage. If Donald Trump taught everybody anything, including his enemies, it's the power of leverage. So if we are, don't need Saudi Arabia because our fracking is so uh, ferocious and so effective and our drilling is just reaching its peak, Saudi Arabia has to listen to us because we affect the oil markets. None other than J.D. Diamond came out, uh, Jamie Diamond came out and said, uh, we are we are the, the player, the swing vote in with this oil and gas because we are the producers. He said that we made a huge mistake in March, not increasing production. So this guy goes over there with no leverage, calling this country a pariah, and wonders why a month before the election they decided to cut production, forcing gas prices up. They're, they are thinking around the bend. They are thinking calculated. I am not a Saudi Arabia fan, but I will take Saudi Arabia 11 days a week over Iran. And that's what I can't believe that this guy is talking about uh, sanctioning Saudi Arabia. For what? Then they'll go get Chinese missile defense. They'll be tighter with China because that's leverage they use against us. That's the law of the jungle in the Middle East. Uh, You know, you mentioned bad players in the Middle East, and there are plenty. Uh, That description would also uh, pretty aptly apply to just about everybody on the New York Mets in the series against the Padres. Uh, Really heartbreaking for those of us that had high hopes for the Mets to make the World Series. Uh, I I was kind of really disappointed and said so. A bunch of people reached out to me, including guests I had on a day or two ago, and said, look, Mets had one of their best best season finishes in history. They won over 100 games. You should be looking at this as the start of a new era, not limited this as another Mets disappointment. How do you see it? Wow, you are optimistic. I do think there are, they have the right owner. I do think they have the right manager. I do think they have the right general manager. I do think they have a lot to be uh, proud of. But when it mattered most, I've never te- seen a team mm. so completely come up short. You go into Atlanta, up one game, controlling the division the entire year, and lose all three, and then you open up a series with your with Scherzer and DeGrom, and you lose one, and then in Game 3, you're never in it? You get one hit at home? Are you kidding me? Inexcusable. Remember the Yankees? I still remember growing up watching those Yankees from Paul Blair and Willie Randolph and Roy White and Munson trying to grind out wins, and you say to yourself, they're being dominated. How do they do it? Well, it's a bunt here, hit by pitch there, a stolen base there, forcing another team to make an error. So when the other pitcher is looks impenetrable, you find a way. The Billy Martin teams found a way. Davey uh, Johnson teams found a way. These guys were like, well, I guess it's not my day. I guess it's not my day. You're blowing a three-game series at home to a lower seed who's playing like with house money. And you went down not 8-7 with a dramatic three-run homer like the Astros produced the other night. You're going down eight uh, for nine innings, totally inept, looking dispirited. How dare you look dispirited? We're, you were sitting there on the precipice of making the next round of the playoffs. You got 48,000 people chanting for you, wait, waiting on every pitch, more supportive than any New York crowd I remember. 
and they cut, he goes, I think, well, we didn't have our day. We came up short. That's not okay. And, 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 you know, I just don't like the way they went down and the way they, I wouldn't say choked because I'm not in the locker room every day, but whatever happened, they were not ready to play. They didn't get outscored. They got outplayed and they look listless. How about Yankees and uh, Cleveland? How do you see that series? Love the way they started. Uh, I I think they got a problem at short. Um, I I cannot, you know, I love uh, that that, uh, Garrett Cole was able to get that monkey off his back from last year. I like the guy. Um, I I think it's a great idea to have Severino uh, third. I think Nestor's going to do great tonight. I would love to see him sweep. But, man, the Astros look so good Mm. again. Mm. Again. They seem to have that quality. So go ahead, sweep out the Indians slash Guardians. Guardians, right. Soup, oops. Yeah. And, and just knock them we'll off and you. send a message. But you know what? Judge should be uh, playing with house money now. And Judge should be so relaxed. He did, you know, he was not getting, did not have any good at bats. He had to walk. But I want that guy to start sending the, the six foot seven, 62 home run message. Oh, no doubt about it. It's going to be interesting to see uh, how the rest of that series plays out. Uh, but you're right. I think Houston's going to be uh, tough to beat. And I think L.A. on the National League front is going to be tough to beat. All right. Uh, let me ask you about another guy that has uh, engendered a lot of controversy this week, uh, especially on the $1,000 Minute. And that is the uh, artist formerly known as Kanye West. He uh, spoke with your colleague at Fox News, Tucker Carlson, about being threatened as a Trump supporter at some Every point. Every single person in Hollywood from my ex-wife to my mother-in-law to my manager at that time to, you know, my, my so-called friends slash handlers around me told me, like, if I said that I like Trump, that my career would be over, that my life would be over. And now uh, he made some remarks that a lot of folks said were anti-Semitic on social media. His accounts have been suspended. The the listenership when we took calls on this the other day was pretty divided. A lot of people said there's no question about it. This was hate speech. It was right that his accounts were suspended. Other folks said no. Um, they should let everybody say whatever they want on social media. Where do you come down on the Kanye West situation? Uh, about social media rules and regulations. I'll yeah. back off that for now. I, I would say I'm just... Uh... I, I have no patience for this, these, these myths of uh, the Jews control the world and they should be blamed. I'm done with that. I mean, I've never accepted it. I have no patience for it. It's idiocy. It's lazy. He spent two days showing with Tucker that he thinks deeply about other things, and huge problems with his marriage, his, the, the role of religion in his life. And then he says the Jews are controlling P. Diddy. Uh, I mean, come on. You undid almost everything you, you said. And I've, uh, I, you know, I don't know what he's thinking. I know he is smarter and creative than most anyone will probably ever talk to. But I would love to see him have one thought per sentence. That would make it a little easier. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he says he's not schizophrenic. I can't or, or bipolar. I can't diagnose him. He says that was misdiagnosed. I think he was absolutely tortured by the Kardashian family. No doubt about it. Uh, but. Uh, this I was willing to put up with, okay, geniuses think different than me, but the Jewish comments I have no patience for. Uh, is the proper pronunciation of his new name Yee or Yay? It's Yay. 
Yay. Okay, thank you. See, I knew right. we had to go to the... Until he changes it. It's the distinguished broadcast professional. You had a great interview uh, this week with another person who's made a lot of news, Tulsi Gabbard, a, lo- a congresswoman from Hawaii, former vice chair of the DNC, former Democratic presidential candidate. She says she's done. She says the Democratic Party is controlled by uh, a woke elitist cabal of warmongers. Uh, no secret that you and she probably differ on a lot of foreign policy issues, but do you see this as a uh, harbinger of things to come, other sort of moderate Democrats leaving the party. And what do you think uh, Tulsi Gabbard's future holds? Okay, uh, I should have played this soundbite, but there was a soundbite from Paul Begala saying that uh, these uh, left-wing white liberals are ruining the Democratic Party. And I assume he's referring to the squad-like figures, but he also should figure these green activists are destroying the party and those uh, those left-wing immigration groups that want to open up our borders and seem to have gotten to Biden, they're ruining the party. I just don't know who lines up behind Tulsi Gabbard because the only other Democrats that buck the party are Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, and that's not all the time. Those are two people that might do that, but who else? I mean, is Mark Kelly a moderate? I don't think so. Is, you know, Harold Ford? Yes, but Harold Ford's a commentator. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd vote for Harold Ford for president. But because he's, he cares about the country first. And, you know, there's certain other things we disagree on. For example, I think that Tulsi Gabbard puts on the uniform and fights, so therefore she has an edge on me. I get it. I totally disagree with her. She says we have no right to help Ukraine. I totally disagree with her on that. But I don't hate her. I don't think she is dumb. I don't think that she needs to be quiet, you know, quiet down. I want her on my show because that makes the show better. But on the other things, when she talks about how patriotic she is, the need for some order in society, the need to back police, I'm with her like 80% of the time. I don't know what her lane is. She certainly would have a TV career or a radio career. I mean, her presentation's phenomenal. The problem is she is so moderate, she might even be conservative. And then if you're conservative, uh, I think a lot of our allure is a Democrat who thinks sensibly. So now she got out of the Democratic lane yeah. and is Elaine is an independent. I don't know who follows her. I know it's always interesting to talk to her. And I would love for the rest of the party to and the Republicans should fear a Democratic Party that agrees with Tulsi Gabbard. They'd have tr- a lot more trouble than they will uh, on November 8th. But I don't know who's behind her. Do you, Frank? Uh, well, I don't. I love a lot of what she says, and I love that she is sort of an independent, and uh, I'm very eager to see what uh, what happens next with her. But uh, you got to put in a word with her uh, for us as well, because we've been trying to get her on uh, on this show, and even though she has a time zone that would be conducive to coming on, uh, our calls have been unreturned. So you got to put in a word for her next time, uh, next time you Frank, guys speak. Frank, I'll do it. Thank you, Brian. I will text her. Uh, Brian Kilmeade, check him out on Fox & Friends. Check him out uh, on his nationally syndicated radio show, and if you're listening on WABC. Listen from 10 a.m. to noon. Brian, it is always a treat. Thank you, my friend. And just one more thing. December 2nd, I'm going to have some Fox surprises. And, Frank, it'll be Friday night, so we'll see if we can get some Vibrin in you. Oh, I'm there. I'm there. Wild horses couldn't stop me from going. New Jersey. Uh, Newark, New Jersey. BrianKillMe.com. BrianKillMe.com. Uh, Brian puts on a great show. I've uh, I've seen it, and it's uh, absolutely terrific in person. Even more exciting than on the radio and TV. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> Go get him, Frank. All right. 800-848-9222. 15 seconds of fame. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
yes, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. So I had said uh, that I was not going to give my football picks because I lost last week. But I'm looking at the standings for this week. And so far for the season, well, I only got nine games right last week. For the season, I'm in fourth place. So I'm doing something right. So I'm going to give you my Frank's picks for the weekend if you are, are in a football pool as well. This is only for fun. I don't want anybody to become a problem gambler like Joel Soper. Um, in the Thursday night game, thank you, thank you, uh, Mr. Matt Plays. In the Thursday night game, Bears are playing the Washington team. I forget what they're called now. I've lost track. I, I hate that the Redskins changed their name. Commanders. The Commanders, the Guardians, the Comanchos, whatever. I am taking the Bears because I, always, I will always oppose the football team formerly known as the Redskins. Sunday, I am taking the 49ers over the Falcons because that was the team I rooted for in my youth. I am also taking the um, the Patriots over Cleveland because I am a very patriotic person. I'm taking the Jets because I am a proud New Yorker. I am taking Jacksonville because uh, that is a city that uses nonpartisan elections. I am taking Minnesota over Miami because Minnesota elected Jesse Ventura. I'm taking Cincinnati over New Orleans because I am annoyed by who that nation. I am taking Baltimore over the Giants. Very rare for me because uh, Baltimore carries our show. I'm taking Pittsburgh over Tampa Bay because that was Rush Limbaugh's team. Taking Carolina over the Rams because I I like the color of their uniform. Uh, Taking the Seahawks over Arizona because I met Joe Nash as a kid. Taking the Chiefs over Buffalo uh, because, you know, I'm fond of the Chiefs. I'm taking the Eagles over the Cowboys because my cousin Andrea lives in Philadelphia. And I'm taking the Chargers over Denver in Monday Night Football uh, because I have been to L.A. and I was I had a great time when I was there. All right, without further ado. The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Joe! Yes, Frank. I think the Mets did outstanding this year. It's their first year with Falk as the new manager. I know on the page. Losing you, Joe. Roger! Yeah, um... I always always learned that cheese helps someone helps you go to sleep. So cheese, crackers, and uh, that sleepy time tea before lunch, before bed. Mike. Tomorrow, Frank. Uh, you know what? Um, you were talking about uh, sports. Us Mets fans, it was a kick in the crotch. Okay? We got to wet our thumb and turn the page. And I don't like political correctness. I hope the Yankees beat the, you know what, out of Cleveland Indians. And I still call them the Washington Redskins and St. John's Redmen. Good day, Frank. Thank you, Mike. Hey, uh, we'll have more time tomorrow. I think we may have Roger Stone on tomorrow, fresh off the last January 6th committee hearing. We'll see. Frank Morano, good day.